Good evening and welcome to the December meeting of the Finance, Government Operations and Economic Development Committee, our last meeting of the year. So thank you to everybody who has uh, helped us all year, particularly all the staff. Um, we've had some good meetings uh, and uh, fittingly, I guess, we're dealing with uh, the main item tonight probably is our, is our year-end fund balance and um, what we're going to be doing with it, which is always a, a good discussion to have. So just for the benefit of, of the public, um, what I'm going to do, because that is going to be a, um, I think by far the longest uh, discussion that we're going to have, is I'm going to keep the fund, the year-end financial condition items, which are items, uh, I guess, six and seven, to the end of the meeting, and we'll kind of rearrange things so that the other items are first on the agenda, and that, that way if you're here for one of those items, you can get out of here. And if you're here from the budget, um, you're stuck with us. We will take a break after we finish all the other items, and then coming out of our break, then we'll do the uh, budget items. Um, we do have a number of items on consent. Uh, that is item four, contract renewal on-call roadway transportation design services, and item five, contract award opening day collection at Brambleton Library. Is there a motion to approve? Second. Made and seconded by Mr. Buffington. Any discussion on the motion? All in favor of the motion, say aye. aye. Anyone opposed? Motion carries 5-0. And uh, welcome Supervisor Umstead to our meeting. Okay, uh, item one is the monthly Department of Economic Development reports. Good evening. Uh, there is time to get your Loudon Holiday Greenery. This year, 12 cut-your-own-tree farms and seven holiday greenery and product venues are participating in the Loudon Holiday brochure. Uh, they are available at all county facilities, including the lobby here, and a digital version is available at loudonfarms.org. Last Tuesday, DED hosted a recognition event for Loudon's 23 companies, which made the Inc. 5000 list to celebrate their accomplishment I just wanted to take this time to recognize those 23 companies and thank them for how well they represent uh, Loudoun County. In your packets, you have the October monthly report. Indicators are very good. Vacancy rates are at pre-recession lows and look really good other than a slight uptick in retail, but, uh, which is something we'll keep an eye on. But I do want to note that we have delivered twice as much retail space uh, it has been permitted this year than this time last year. So part of the uptick is new supply coming online. And at this point, I wanted to introduce Sarah Price. She's uh, our business development manager, and she will discuss our innovation health cluster. Sarah. Hi. Um, thank you, Supervisor Letourneau, and to the rest of the board for allowing me to present. I'm very excited to present our um, business attraction strategy for the health innovation and technology sector. We are focused now uh, on more of a shift towards digital health because over the last five years, the life sciences sector has been seeing a lot of dramatic changes and growth in technological advances uh, in remote patient monitoring and analytics and big data and predictive um, analytics as well and using wellness applications like smartphones as a platform. Because of that, the county's adapted its approach to reflect this and to shift uh, and to reflect the trend, rather, to focus more on what we're calling the health innovation and technology sector, which includes the life science sector, but we are adapting to go with the market. Um, the convergence of these technologies with mobile data analytics, again, artificial intelligence, uh, 
machine learning and transforming of personalized health is changing how we're experiencing health, how all of us will experience it. Um, before I sort of go into our strategy, I'd like to just tell a real quick illustrative story that really demonstrates where we're going with health. Uh, when you're feeling not too well in the future, I think uh, like Buddy's voice is showing us here, you'll talk to your smartphone <laughs> or your Alexa, and that will, it'll do a big metadata search and tell you maybe you just need an aspirin, you need to go to bed, or it will contact a health professional. It could be a doctor, it could be an artificial intelligence, who will then get um, information on your metrics, your oxygen level, your body temperature, your blood glucose level, sent to them, and they'll Skype you. They may decide to write a prescription, and a drone will deliver it to your front door. This is a made-up example, but I think it illustrates where we're headed in health. All of this is going to happen through the cloud. All of this requires lots and lots of data, lots and lots of technology, and a high-skilled tech-savvy workforce. Um, the future of health is in Loudoun. Oops, I'm sorry. I'm not moving our presentation to show you the, the pictures here. Because of Loudoun County, because we have such a huge capacity for data, for information, for technology, we believe we're at the nexus of all of this with data analytics, with predictive analytics, with uh, information, with our workforce, and we think that we are the future of health. Um, I'm going to switch now to talk about our objective. Again, it's to attract health innovation technology companies, uh, the business strategy. And in doing so, we've done an industry review. We've talked to our clients here. We've talked to external clients, done a lot of um, information gathering. We've divided the categories of the sector into two groups. One is direct patient-facing organizations. And you, those examples are our strong uh, health providers, our hospitals, Inova, at Loudoun, Stone Springs, HCA, these organizations directly interface with patients. They serve them on a daily basis. The reason we've directed the two categories is the growth for these types of companies are a little bit different. The direct patient-facing organizations are really impacted by demographic changes. As the population is exploding and growing in Loudoun, we're going to see a lot more of the doctor offices, dental offices, those types of organizations. They're strong huge growth drivers for the economy, and our office still continues to focus on them and serve them. The other sector uh, group that we've identified are what we're calling the indirect patient-facing organizations, and our anchor organizations in these are EPL archives, our K2M, Aperionomics, our HHNMI, Genelia, uh, George uh, Washington's Autism and Neurodevelopment Disorder Institute, which is opening soon here at the uh, Tech campus. They have a lot more um, flexibility in where they're going to locate. They're affected by demographics, but they're growing because of the technological advances in health and in smart uh, technology in the example that I gave. As such, our strategy to check to attract them is different because of their flexibility and where they can locate. They have a choice. Um, again, they're driven by demographics. But the outlook for health and innovation and technology is around this convergence of lifestyle, behaviors with mobile data, analytics, tracking all of it, uh, personalized health and medicine, uh, bioinformatics, gen genomics. And again, because Loudoun is the sweet spot, we've looked at our assets and where we align with the health sector uh, going forward, and we've really focused on how we can attract and grow the sector. Our primary goals right now, we've started to uh, really brand what our health innovation technology sector is and what it looks like. 
and to implement strategies to attract companies and continue to grow them here. We have uh, convened an executive board with our health uh, partners, and we've met with them. We're continuing to, to get their input on where we head. We're um, creating uh, opportunities for them to network together, and we're creating a developing C-suite to C-suite recruitment strategies, and then also attending attraction events and uh, conferences where we go out of the market, including uh, J.P. Morgan, which is happening in January. We will be attending a conference on biotech that's happening concurrently in San Francisco to attract, again, those um, indirect patient-facing organizations and to continue also cont uh, partnering with our groups here in Virginia uh, across uh, the counties and to grow the industry. So we feel really strong about this and I would welcome you to um, ask any questions and thank you again for the opportunity to present. Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned the Stone Springs Hospital uh, area and I know a lot of this is really about less brick and mortar and more other types, but um, it certainly seems like almost every uh, Every month, uh, we are approached about a new medical office type of project in that corridor around the hospital. Um, I guess the question is, what do you think that market is? And um, is there a risk, like in many other things, that the, um, the advent of technology um, reduces the need for a physical office space? Um, I think the answer is twofold. There's definitely a high demand for medical office space. And, and we're seeing um, more of that coming. So that's still definitely going to grow. You're still going to need to have one-on-one -on -one contact. The mobile smartphone and that technology is going to enhance um, health, but it also allows for the delivery of additional information that we're merging with our genetic and uh, health information, like our behaviors. We're, we're counting our steps now. We're doing things like that. So the two of them are dovetailing well. I think right now we're still going to see a very large demand for market space. Well, I think as we look at the 50 corner in particular, that's really what the industry is at this point. Um, we've got, you know, rehab hospital and, and um, a few other facilities, the hospice, and now the hospital, which is just, you know, I think the 50 quarters kind of struggled for that identity in terms of what the business market is, but I think it's become medical with that, with that hospital. So hopefully we can continue to put resources into assisting that, that cluster and growing. Chair Randall. Thank you, and nice to meet you. I, I'm actually surprised. I was going to ask Mr. Uh, something on the line that Mr. Letourneau just asked, and i got to tell you, I'm, I'm happily surprised to hear that there is still a, a thriving market for office space because – there are so many screening tools now that are health-based screening tools, and I get concerned that people are not actually walking into offices and having that human contact and being seen and that type of thing. Um, so I'm happy to, to know that there is still a, a need for the <coughs> brick-and-mortar buildings and that that is something. Um, do we have any organizations that are working on um, our businesses working on the social determinants of health in Loudoun County? And if so, do, is that a predictor of Loudoun's overall health? Because I think if we knew that, it would also um, influence what type of brick-and-mortar buildings we need we need to have. So do you know if we're doing any, any organizations that have screening tools on social determinants of health? We're across the Northern Virginia area. We just participated in the Center for Studies that did a, a paper that came out on the social determinants of health as of 
major um, need to help increase health. And so in Loudoun County, our, our researchers, especially in the Bioinformatics Institute at GW, are working on it um, and marrying biographic information and behavioral information with, again, health information. Uh, as far as I know, right now we have a handful of companies. We're working with a, some small companies that are looking at perinomics as one uh, that's looking at behavior and how it's connected as a predictor with even infection and disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would, when, when, when that information is compiled, I would be really interested to see what it says. So thank you. I think as long as Buddy and I keep getting sick, there'll still be a market for us. I think I, I, well, I, I now I like telepathically have your cold. I think I got it from you, actually. Um, a, a quick story. Um, I first met Sarah about eight years ago. She was at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and she actually represented Newstar on their headquarters deal. And so I had negotiated that deal with her eight years ago. So it's funny how things merge together. It is. Okay, any other questions on that topic? Thanks for coming. Did you have anything else for us as part of your update? Not at this time. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the next uh, item is comprehensive annual financial report for fiscal year ending June 30th, and this is um, really our audit. <coughs> um, so there is a presentation. Um, there were, as I'm sure you saw, those of you that, that looked at the packet, that there are some things that we, we will need to discuss. So we'll let them get that up. Good evening. Um, we are here once again to present uh, the fiscal year and um, 2017 audit. And I have with me Rob Churchman from uh, Cherry Beckard, who is our external auditor. And I also have Lisa Cockrell, who is our interim controller here, um, to help out with any questions you may have. Okay. Good evening. Go, I think you can oh. go quickly through a lot of this. That's kind of stuff we're familiar with, and then maybe pause for some of the finding stuff that. that Certainly. As I was mentioning a couple of the board members beforehand, the auditing standards require me to at least broach these concepts yes. with you yes. to make sure that people weren't, weren't privy to it previously. Absolutely. My name is Rob Churchman, a partner serving the county. I'm here to give you some really great news in the holiday season. Your financial statements have been issued. We found that they were uh, fairly presented in all material respects. And of course, we generally accepted the county principal, the opinion you wanted and opinion you need on your financial statements. It's all a testament to the to the work of the finance department to my right here, putting together that very large document, uh, compliant and also compliant with the state's deadlines. I have some communications that are required. I'll go through them briefly. Uh, obviously, you hired us to do an audit. We do an audit both in accordance with uh, government auditing standards, but also federal funds and also state funds, which are the second and third bullets there. We also have some requirements from the state. Uh, the, the biggest one up there that you see is the comparative cost report. That is the, uh, the requirement that all cities, towns, and counties put their information into a standard general ledger uh, format so that the state can pre prepare a report where you can compare yourself against peers in, in various manners. And that report is uh, issued generally uh, in, the, in the February timeframe. Uh, your, your requirements were submitted timely to the, to the state uh, filling, fulfilling that requirement. Overall audit results. 
unmodified opinion. That's a fancy word for basically saying you've got a clean opinion. The opinion you want to take home, put on your refrigerator. Uh, we did have some weaknesses that we noted throughout our testing. Uh, there are uh, one-time occurrence weaknesses related to some, ch um, some updating of um, some numbers that were required, required uh, reported in the prior years to fix those numbers, uh, and also a one-time um, occurrence in the current year related to um, the presentation of deposits and transits versus cash versus receivable. We do have a recurring finding there, as you see, for our federal funding. Um, uh, although the county is making great strides, uh, they are still um, having... Um, uh, cases that are not being redetermined timely enough, I'm sorry, I should say, in accordance with the time period the feds require for Medicaid eligibility. It is a very common finding across the state because of the ACA impact of the roles swelling so much in the last couple of years with people getting on Medicaid. But they have made dramatic progress and continue to make dramatic progress in getting, that, getting those uh, case numbers down. Some Virginia compliance findings are here on, on, on page 8. Nothing that's overly... Uh, overly onerous or, or concerning, I don't have a lot of flexibility when the state says, Rob, tell me what you see. So when you see up there an instance of one item, I had to tell the state that that one person didn't, re didn't get the required training in the social services area for access. I just have to tell them. It's, I'm not saying the sky is falling or anything. There's no big fracture there, but I have to report it. We required, my required communications, I required to let you know that there were some changes in policies this year in the finance area. They all relate to generally accepted accounting principle changes. So nothing that was dictated by finance. They had to implement some new guidance requirements this year to be uh, in, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles like every other city, town, and county across Virginia. Required to let you know that there are estimates in your financial statements. Uh, unless you work on a very simple, straightforward cash basis uh, corporation or, or, or not-for-profit, you're going to have some estimates. These are standard estimates that you see in a lot of your peers, pension estimates, uh, self-insurance claims, and so forth. Uh, I'm required to let you know that we look at those each year for comparability, consistency, not only within the county itself but with peers across the state. And we found that all the estimates appear to be reasonable, consistent. We want to make sure you're not making changes to your estimates year over year because you, that's one way you kind of can – Manage numbers, and we don't want we don't want that to happen. We want you to be in, in, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. I'm also required to let you know we had a couple adjustments during the year. One was corrected, and this has to go back to the um, the significant deficiency on, on three slides earlier, uh, getting uh, an amount out of uh, cash and into accounts receivable year. So basically, a reclass on the balance sheet. Then also there was a correction of some numbers uh, related to land proffer that really occurred last year, but it was recorded as the current year. A matter, so it's just a matter of getting it in the right. Uh, it, it wasn't materially impacting your financial statements, but I'm required to let you know that that transaction did occur. There was no disagreements with management, no difficulties encountered during the audit, and we're not aware of any other consultation that you may have had, uh, you as a county may have had with other auditing firms to discuss accounting and/or reporting requirements. Required to let you know there's a management representation letter provided to the auditor each year. That's a standard required letter under the audit standards, and basically just asserts to us as the auditor from, from you as the auditee uh, that they that they are your financial statements, that you provided us access to all information you're aware of, litigation-wise, uh, uh, federal review-wise, and so forth. If, if there was ever a, a client who wanted to modify those standard representations, that would give me pause. That would make me, why would you want to change you know, something that's pretty standard? Didn't happen here. Management uh, represented all to us all the items that we need to be represented to under the standards, but I had to make you aware that that letter came. And the last item here is, it's always the last item, but it's really just as important as everything else on here. We are not aware of any transaction, relationship, personnel matter, or so forth that would make us not independent with the county. If we weren't independent, we couldn't objectively provide the service and give you the opinion we're required to give you. It is one of the items that I tell you each year that it's, it's a non-event, 
but the auditing standards require me to positively affirm this to you each year just to make sure that everybody's aware that there, that there wasn't any independence matters. Those are my required communications. The last two slides are for in case you have problems sleeping or you just want to do, you know, practice your Google searching. Just to tell you the things are coming down the pike here in the next, next couple years uh, with some changes to accounting principles. Now, this is all of them that have been actually issued. They're not all going to impact you. Really, the one on these two pages is going to impact you. It's the very first bullet there, Gatsby 75. Next, uh, the year you're sitting in now, next year's financial statements for the first time, just like in 2015 when pension was put on your statement in that position as a liability, you'll be recording the other post-employment benefit liability actually determined on your statement in that position. So conceptually, another large negative number in the bottom of your quote-unquote balance sheet. But you're in the same boat as everybody else across the nation. They're all reporting it for the first time uh, this year. And so you'll have some comparability against peers and, and, and colleagues, uh, but there can be some differences between the plans that, that, that each entity may Our, offer. Ours to their is going to look better than most. Yeah, yeah. There's some going to be really, really, really well, really poor off, um, especially uh, outside of Virginia. Those are my required communications, and a little, uh, little bit at the end of telling you what's coming down the pike. I'd be happy to answer any questions that I could, or uh, provide you any information. I know you have a full agenda. So there were a couple of findings of um, essentially mistakes that were made. Yes, sir. One of them was related to um, compliance and reporting um, from certain, I think, staff and elected officials. Um, yes, Conf economic interest forms, yes, sir. Right, just not being timely. Um, and that is a very common finding across the state. Right, um, but the, uh, the $25 million is the one that kind of I wanted to drill down in a little bit and maybe get some more detail from you and staff as to exactly what happened there. Sure. Uh, basically, a transaction occurred near year end. It was recorded as a deposit in transit coming in as cash, but it really wasn't, it really wasn't received before year end. It really should have been in receivables. So it didn't impact your overall asset balance. So it wasn't that geography we did $25 million in cash. It was just when the $25 million was reported. It was reported early or late. It was reported, I guess, early. Yeah. Early as a deposit in transit, um, as a reconciling I'm on cash, as opposed to still be in, in accounts receivable. It's a geography matter. Okay. All right. Other questions for – yes, Chair Randall. Just, um, thank you. Uh, can you give me a time frame? I'm on, I'm on page 8, and I know that um, I agree that none of these things are the kind of the sky is falling, but the social service computer, computer access request, when was, this, when was the audit completed? I'm trying to – things have – Our audit report? No, <laughs> or, or when, was, when was this actually – when was this compliance result actually done? On, it, it, we reported it at the end of November in our, in our reports. When did you find the, the, the compliance issues, if you were? When, wh wh in what time frame were those? We would have done our testing in the summer time frame. I, I, I could give you a date. I don't have my computer. In the sum right. This past summer? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Right we would right have done on. our compliance right. testing. Uh, these, is, these compliance matters are, are the testing has to be done every year. So it's not like it's a couple years in arrears. So this testing was done. I think to help answer your question, though, we're looking at the previous year that ended in the previous fiscal year. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So that's when my question. It actually yeah. takes care of all my questions. Yep. And we do do a follow-up in next year's audit to see if the matter has been resolved or, or rectified, whatever, whatever terminology you'd like to use. So, yeah, we, we typically line this up with the year-end fund balance discussion because they're dealing with the same budget year. Other questions, comments? 
Well, thank you very much for your work. Thank you. And um, see you again soon. Have a great holiday season. Thank you very much. Okay, item uh, three this evening is the Go Virginia program opportunities. Mr. Bona has been keeping us updated on the activities of Go Virginia, but we've kind of come to the point where we have to start making uh, some decisions. So, uh, Mr. Reiser, why don't you present the item? I'm sure Mr. Bona will also have uh, some information for us. But Good evening again. Um, we're here to get your direction for our participation in the Go Virginia program. As you mentioned, uh, Supervisor Bona has been very involved in this program as a member of the Region 7 Board. <clears throat> this is a state-level program that is designed to support programs to grow high-paying jobs in the Commonwealth. It incentivizes regions to collaborate in order to grow the economy. There's a lot of detail in your item about the program, and we can answer questions about that if you'd like. But the main topic for your consideration is how you would like us to approach projects when they are presented to us. A letter of support is required with the final application for each project, and we're looking for direction on how the board would like DED to respond to those requests. There is a matching component to the program, a minimum of 20% or $50,000 must come from the participating locality. There are currently not funds identified uh, as part of the business incentive fund for use should the match if the board would like to participate. Finally, these projects will be much different than the typical projects we would bring to you. Uh, they will not have the same return on investment, traditional return on investment numbers like we give you. Um, so we suggest creating a new criteria for this. Now this comes at an interesting time because I just learned that the governor today did a press release about the first grants in the Go Virginia program, $2.2 million in grants. Three were awarded from uh, Region 7, one was Arlington and Alexandria, and two other Northern Virginia projects, both which uh, include Loudoun as a stakeholder. One we were aware of and is in your project packet tonight. The other we were not uh, approached about. Um, and it was my understanding that, uh, that to go forward they would need the letter from the county as a, si a signaler, and uh, we did not do that. So. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure where the program went today, where this was announced. And um, with that, uh, Ms. Cardaz and I will be happy to answer any questions, but I think Supervisor Bona would probably uh, be able to add some light to the situation as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll have Supervisor Bona kind of help introduce this, and then I definitely have some questions. Do you want to just give us a... Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me just try to work our way through this. Buddy and I have talked about this, and unfortunately, this program moved too fast. And I'm one to not say that. I like things to go fast. But it, it was a baby, literally a baby. They gave us two months to come up with our entire growth and diversity plan and get it approved by the state board. They only gave us two more months to solicit and get applications from all the community and to evaluate them all and then to try to pick what we wanted to send forward to the state board. So there was literally not adequate time to do this properly. And what ended up happening is we got a lot of projects submitted. Three of us recused ourselves from the proposal evaluation. That was myself, John Faust, the uh, Fairfax supervisor, and Marty Noah, the Prince William supervisor, because we recused because we knew we could be involved in potentially voting on a match, and we didn't want to have that conflict. 
what ended up happening was we broke the proposal evaluations down, and I think we had 17 of them, 17 proposals, and several of them were not ready for prime time. There just wasn't enough time. And I think about 10 of them moved to, we're going to do another round of proposal evaluations in two months, and about 10 of them got moved to the next round. And we just said, you're not ready. Seven got evaluated, and out of that, the ones you just mentioned are what got sent forward to the state board by the regional board, okay? And I wasn't aware of that announcement. That just must have just happened because the Region 7 board, we meet Thursday morning of this week, okay, all morning. But what I've talked to Buddy about is these proposals are not going to fit our current ROI criteria because almost every proposal we've received is what I would call workforce-oriented, and some of the discussions we're having, and we're, the, the, the discussion this Thursday is going to be how to move forward from a strategy perspective because there was no time to develop a strategy. It was literally just opportunistic. And the problem some of us are having is that these opportunities we're getting do not scale. Okay? And what I mean by that is this proposal might create 50 new cyber jobs or train 50 new cyber people. It's not scaling for the money. And we think there's some better ways to handle this where some of the money will come from the private sector. If you told me that Mason and Nova and all of that and um, Tidewater University were all going to partner and put a big cyber program together for vets and that industry can, will be guaranteed interviews with those graduates, I'm going to tell you the companies are going to put money in because of what it costs us to recruit those people, okay? And that's not the way it's working right now. That would allow it to scale because it would feed itself more money than is private sector money. And several of us on the board are looking at that model, but the problem is we're in reaction mode here. Now, the match. The match, first of all, Buddy said 20%. He's right, although that was a moving target because the state board changed its mind on that every week. And the legislation isn't even really clear that there has to be a match. Second of all, that match can be in-kind. I want to point that out. It can be in-kind. So if it involves Mason Enterprise Center, well, this board gives money to the Mason Enterprise Center. There's your match. We don't need new money. And one of those proposals did involve the Mason Enterprise Center that you were referring to, and that's why I bring it up. That match, though, has to come from two jurisdictions, not one. The applications have to be interjurisdictional, And that was the whole purpose about diversifying a region so the proposals you're seeing don't benefit a specific jurisdiction. They benefit multiple jurisdictions or even the region. And so there's going to be a lot of discussion on Thursday about, you know, this money only goes so far. It's not going to make a big enough dent. So how do we scale it up going forward? The task here tonight is simple. All Buddy's asking for is can they do letters of commitment where it's appropriate and let's create new guidelines that are different than our current incentive guidelines from an economic prospect perspective because these projects are different. Okay, so thanks. So I guess I'm struggling a little bit with the decision about whether I actually want to put money into some of these things when we don't have a great idea of exactly what it's going to be going towards and what the return on investment would be for the county because we were dealing with a finite pot of money um, we have an incentive program that we use sparingly, but we do use with regularity. Um, and, you know, we're essentially going to have to create a new one. One thing I was going to ask you to do, it, which 
Supervisor Bona did a little bit was, can you just walk us through, and now we don't have to, I guess, have to be hypothetical, but can you walk us through a hypothetical application process with the type of project it is, what it could be, and then exactly how it's funded and what we would be asked to do as part of that process? Sure, and, and Supervisor Bona can jump in here. Uh, as I understood the program, uh, they, there would be an application made to the regional board. The regional board would then say yes or say no or say come back later. At that point, they would be instructed to get letters of commitment for support from the jurisdiction. But the type of projects, these are not things that we deal with now where company X wants to locate a headquarters in X place. This is more, it sounds like, stuff like um, job training or, yeah, um, I don't know, pick out a few other examples. Cybersecurity training, technology, workforce training, those types of things. And, and those are very important, but it's really tough for us to get to any sort of ROI on that, uh, and we don't know. So how do they decide which, which jurisdictions or localities are going to need to contribute? Well, and how is it decided what that amount is and how is it divvied up? If I may. Yes, please. Um, yeah. When the proposals are made, they come from places where the jurisdiction is pretty easy to figure out. If they look at the very last one in the packet, this, is higher, this application was made by Hire Our Heroes. All right, where is Hire Our Heroes located? Leesburg, Virginia. Yeah. Okay. So right there, they would say, Loudon, we would look to you for a match on this. Now, the applicant, when they make their application, though, is supposed to say, I've got the commitment for that match from the jurisdiction. I will say that that did happen properly in Fairfax. It didn't happen at all in Loudoun. I, I was hearing about I was looking at applications <coughs> where I'd see it checked off that they had a match from Loudoun. I'm going, that's funny. I said on the Board of Supervisors, I've never heard of this. Okay. But I will say the Fairfax Board <laughs> did go to closed session over some of these. And they did fund some of the opportunities that were Fairfax-centric. And uh, one of them, I think, was for quite a bit. It was six figures. Okay, so. The Board of Supervisors, not the EDA? The Board of Supervisors. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Other questions? Chair Randall. Um, a couple things, and this is for Supervisor Bona as well as uh, staff. It, it strikes me that a couple of things, and, and Mr. Bona, you know this, as, as, as the Go Virginia process was was being kind of sussed out a little bit. There was some talk about taking the, some money out of Go Virginia and putting it on other things when the budget was. So per, I'm, I said that to say perhaps the kind of ex expedience in getting things done was a fear that if they didn't have something presented, they would they would lose money. And, and or it could have been because the the governor that initiated Go Virginia would be soon leaving office. And so I'm wondering if some of the expedience wasn't kind of um, for political considerations. And not They weren't bad considerations, but just political considerations. And now that we have some answers, we know who the governor-elect is, and, and, and it doesn't look like that there's still anybody in the General Assembly looking to remove any funds from Go Virginia, maybe some of, some of that... Um, will calm down and they can be a little more thorough in their discussions and look. So that's the first thing for Mr. Bowen. And the second thing was, and you may have said this, but I may, if, I, if you did, I missed it. 
if a match has to come from two jurisdictions, does it have to come from the two jurisdictions in equal amounts? No. Or can one jurisdiction do the full amount or in kind, or can it be just any, any, any mix? Any mix. Okay. All right. Thank you. And what do you think about the first part of the uh, I think it was partly political um, because of the expediency, but I also say there was enabling legislation. But that legislation more defined like how do you pick your regional consuls? Who serves on them? What are the required positions? What are the discretionary positions? The state board, which was appointed by the governor, kind of made things up on the fly as they went along. Now, one thing to understand, this works like NVTA. There is regional money and there is state money. And there's two different, these applications were competing for the regional pot that the regional, Region 7 Council has. There's going to be more proposals coming, uh, I believe in the, I think it's the January, February timeframe, where, where we as a regional council will vote on what we send to the state board for state money to fund them. So it's kind of like the 70-30 mix that we have from NVTA. There's two pots of money. One comes local, one doesn't. Right. Mr. Chairman. Chair Randall. This may be something that we put in the legislative item to just watch to make sure that there's no efforts to take any money out of Go Virginia. I'm not, I don't know if we need to do a legislative initiative, but just to watch um, because there had been talk about that before. Um, some of, some, I, I had been, I thought I had been following Go Virginia really closely and you give an update almost every meeting and there are things I'm learning right here tonight that are, that are new. And so it, 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 it moves really fast. Okay, thank you very much. The yeah. issue, uh, it's, a, it's not really a legislation issue as much as it is a budgetary issue. And I don't, I don't believe, go has Governor McAuliffe, I don't know if he's introduced his new budget yet. No. I, I didn't think he had. So we need to watch and see what he introduces for funding for the Go Virginia initiative. I think that's going to be a real curiosity for, uh, statewide, not just for us. Um, Supervisor Umstead, you have a question. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, on... On an entity like the Mason Enterprise Center, given that the one in Leesburg is part of a larger effort by Mason and they have multiple enterprise centers, would Fairfax and Loudoun joining together create the same dynamic that you've got with Leesburg and Loudoun jointly, jointly funding it? I think that it absolutely would. It's not clear to me that Leesburg and Loudoun would mean two jurisdictions, um, and it wasn't clear to the counselors at Go Virginia either. That's why Mason Enterprise Center pulled back the application at this time. And there were some questions about the in-kind funding. You know, would that, if they're already, the funding is already dedicated to other programming and none of that programming goes away, how, does, how do you then match that with in-kind? So there was a lot of questions about that, so that was pulled back. Okay, thank you. And Mr. Chair, if I may, yes. uh, there were other jurisdictions that also have not yet voted on a match. Uh, I, I believe Fairfax did go to closed session, set up a fund, and has gone through that, but that was run through the county and not through the EDA. I do not, I am not aware of letters of match that have come from other jurisdictions for these at this time. So it seems that they haven't really followed their their programs at this point. Yeah. Uh, Supervisor Saints, 
Thank you. Quick question. Um, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but say if we can we wait and see what happens, or say if we could put in and then say decline later on if we feel it's not working, is that even an option? We're not spending any money here tonight. You're just creating a pot to potentially fund things if we like them. So we're not we're not sitting here today and saying, buddy, you have two hundred thousand dollars and go do whatever you want with it on these projects. The board's still going to have the authority over this. So all you're doing tonight is really reserving two hundred thousand in case. That's correct. That's correct. And and asking for criteria for what we would even bring to you. Yeah, I guess I my concern is just this thing is off to a bad start and it hasn't given anybody any degree of confidence. And if you're finding out about projects in Loudoun County through press releases from the governor before you show up at the finance committee meeting, then that's not something I want to participate in. It was actually when I was between items that I was here. Oh, even better. <laughs> even better, even better. And I, I don't even, I mean, I think to some extent we need to send a message that, not that we're never going to be in, but you cannot operate like this and we're not going to put money in and I don't care how great the project is. So I'm not sure where that leaves me tonight as a vote, um, but it leaves me certainly wanting to send that message. So I'm not going to make a motion. If others want to, they can. Mr. Bono. Yeah, I'm going to make the motion just because I, I feel all we're – well, let me just make the motion. I'll, <laughs> I move that the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors approve the county's financial participation in providing local matching funds as part of the Go Virginia initiative to create more high-paying jobs subject to merit-based criteria for project award. I further move that the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend that the Board of Supervisors direct the Department of Economic Development to develop merit-based criteria and processes for review an award of local matching funds for Go Virginia projects and, to, and return to a future Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee meeting for review and approval. And I further move that the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee, we've got to find a quicker way to say that, <laughs> recommend that the Board of Supervisors allow the Department of Economic Development to issue letters of commitment to review local Go Virginia requests before making a financial decision. Motion's made, seconded by Supervisor Sains. Opening, Mr. Bono. Yeah. Our timing on now. Yeah, I, I'm not. <laughs> Every project's got to stand on its merits, and I've told Buddy this from the very beginning because you and I were scratching our heads at first because of the way this process is moving along. But tonight, we, we aren't committing anything, and the board's got the final say over whether to commit anything. All we're doing tonight is saying, let's develop some criteria because we know the criteria we have for the, the traditional ED prospects are different. And if we don't ever want to fund anything, so be it. If we don't think anything's good, so be it. We'll claw back the, the $200,000. But right now, we're just kind of hedging our bets, saying there's a lot of proposals coming. The first round was incredibly rushed. I mean, way too rushed. And we're coming with another local round, and we're coming with a state round not too far down the road. So let's at least put ourselves in a position that if we want to participate, we'll have the ability to do so. And I will say, in the case of the Fairfax Board, they actually funded a specific project. When they made their because I talked to John Faust about it. And when they made their decision to put the money in, it wasn't to create a fund like we're doing here tonight. It was actually to fund a, an actual project uh, with a pretty substantial amount. Okay, thank you. Chair Randall. Yes, um, I'm going to support the motion. Um, I, I obviously realize what the, what the issue are and that there are considerable issues. I think that this is a, 
a program that is still somewhat in its infancy. So it's finding its way to some degree. And I think if we give a message that we're just not interested, that might be the wrong message to give when, when, there's, when there is a lot of good that can be done with this, uh, with Go Virginia. And, and I also think that Mr. Bona being on the board, we can in, in some ways improve it and make it better and you know go forward with it, no pun intended. Um, so I, I, I think this is kind of baby bathwater moment that we don't want to, we, you know, we don't want to overreact by, by saying we, you know, we don't want any parts of this. At the same time, I, I do think it's important to have um, discussions about, about, you know, looking to do this in a more, in, in, a, in a way that's a, a little more clear and has some metrics behind it and, um, people are not getting emails within five minutes of <laughs> when things happen. And, you know, if something's actually happening loud and maybe the board should know about it and maybe even vote on it in advance. So, so I, 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 Mr. Letourneau, I hear you and I understand the issues, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to overreact. So this is a pretty innocuous, um, um motion that doesn't do too much tonight. And I, I hope that what we're looking to do from here on out is, here on out is to help um, improve the process. Um, let me try a friendly amendment, um, which would be that Mr. Riser communicate to, who's the entity here, really? What do we call it? The Go Virginia Board or? The Region 7 Go oh, Virginia the Region board. 7. Carolyn Perrant is the chairwoman okay. of the board. Well, let me, let me say what I want to do, and then we can discuss where the best place. What I want to do is I want to make somewhat of an official inquiry as to whether this group intends to actually follow their process or not and indicate that if they're not, we may not be interested in participating. So I don't know who the appropriate entity to receive that. I just want to do something here that indicates that this is not okay, and although we're saying, okay, we're, we're in for the discussion, the way this, you know, you're not off to a good start, and we want to make sure that you actually intend to follow the process that you set forth. If I may. Yes, Mr. Bowen. Um, I, I think the process was followed. The problem was uh, the process was put in place in nanoseconds, and the time it allowed to, to go out for a call for proposals, get the proposals and evaluate the proposals, was so extraordinarily short that it couldn't be done adequately. This announcement came from the governor's office. I don't even know if the state board knew this announcement was well, coming. But if if the locality is supposed to vote on whether to match a, a, an award before it's moving forward to the state board, that wasn't followed, clearly. We, right? were, we were not asked for a match. That's what That's the part I'm talking about. Well, again, we were not asked for a match. That's why we didn't meet over a match. Well, I know, but we should have been asked for a match. That's not following the process to me that Mr. Reiser laid out. Would you agree, Mr. Reiser, that that? It was my understanding that, that they would need a letter of commitment of support with, as part of the application from each of the jurisdictions listed. And the ask was if, if we could support, it would be proportionate to our participation. But the point is we would have to do that before something would move forward. That was part of the part of the process. The right? only thing I would say is that they could move forward without us and then someone else would have to pick up 
our portion of that match is the only thing I can uh, that I can guess. Okay, Mr. Bowman. If, if I may, the applicant should come to us, specifically Buddy, Buddy's department, and say, I'm going to submit this application to the Region 7 Board Council, and we would like Loudon to consider a match. That's how it should work. Okay, well, my... Now, I'm on, but honestly, uh, right, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so what I was asking was whether we can add an, an amendment to this motion simply making an inquiry as to whether the intention is going forward to follow that process. So I will make that as a friendly amendment. Before I accept that, I'm trying to understand who we're going to. Well, that's why I was asking. <laughs> I mean, it really, it's probably the state board, but the, the state board is just kind of throwing it down on the region saying, you guys figure it out. Somebody decided today to issue, I don't care if it's the governor or whoever, but somebody decided today to essentially announce the award of a grant without including the locality. So whoever decided that, that's who we should make an inquiry to to ask if that is their intention going forward to do it that way or if they're going to wait for the locality to actually respond. So I'm happy to leave it open so we can figure out at a later date or before this goes to the board who that is, but I think we need to at least... How about, that point. how about if you change the friendly amendment to just instruct Buddy's department to look into wh what we can, where we can send the right correspondence as to the process issues? I mean, it's a little different. You're kind of you're kind of lobbying a, a bomb, in my opinion, too early, because it wasn't that the process wasn't followed. I, I just have a hard time saying you need to follow your process. In this particular case, the process is the state board would approve those applications that came from the regions. Then the governor chooses to announce it. So I'm not sure anything got violated process-wise. He probably should have notified the localities ahead of time, but that's protocol. That's not process. Well, I'm sorry. Maybe I just don't understand the program. If, if the locality is supposed to provide a match and hasn't decided to provide a match yet, then how is that not a process issue? That was the. That's an upfront issue. It has nothing to do with the announcement today. That should have happened at the very. Be well, that should actually happen before the applicant okay. submits the proposal so to the, the region. Forget the issue then about the announcement. That's the part that I'm drilling down on here that I want to ensure does not continue to happen. That's why most of the proposals were deferred or thrown out because they didn't have the upfront match. Okay. Point of clarification, Mr. Laterno, could you one more time say what you, well, what you want your friendly yeah, amendment to be? What I would like my friendly amendment to be is that we simply, Mr. Riser, on behalf of the county, make an inquiry to the appropriate entity. Number, I'll, I'll rephrase a little bit. Number one, to, 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 to ascertain why the locality was not consulted. And two, to ensure that moving forward, the locality is consulted and at least asked to provide a match prior to have an idea. The, the application moving forward. That's what I'm asking. I, I, how about if I suggest this? Go ahead. It is a friendly amendment. Mr. Riser, reach out to the Region 7 Chair or Executive Committee. He knows who they all are. I can help him. Okay. And simply say what and when in your process are localities supposed to be asked to mad to provide a match because theoretically we should be asked before that application is even submitted as yeah. a proposal but honestly there was like a week to respond with proposals we didn't even have a board meeting in between there to go into closed session or even open session to discuss it because it moved so fast we didn't even have any board meetings so how about if we have him go to the regional council and say what is the process or what are the timelines as to when a local jurisdiction uh, has to decide on the match Okay, I don't know that we need an amendment for that. I think we can just we can just instruct staff to do that. Okay, 
Um, let's do that. Uh, all right. Any other comments on the motion? Mr. Bonin, you have a quote. Okay. All in favor of the motion, say aye. 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 Uh, anyone opposed? I'm going to abstain. Motion carries 401. Okay. Thank you. And we should, we're not meeting again till January 3rd or something. So I think we should probably have some answers before the board meets again. And I would ask perhaps Chair Randall, we not put this item on consent so that we can have a better, uh, get some answers Absolutely. and the full board. Thank you. True. True. Well, I, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> next item is item eight, post issuance compliance for tax exempt bonds policy. And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but because it's here, I thought it might be appropriate for us to at least have a very brief discussion about what exactly these tax exempt bonds are and what potential risk there is to the county with discussions about changing the treatment of these in federal legislation. And Mr. Hempstreet knows I was going to ask that question, so he may be the one that answers that. But go ahead, Nikki. Okay. Uh, good evening, Chairman and members of the committee. Um, the item before you is seeking to get board approval on the post-issuance compliance procedures that are in attachment one to your item. Uh, these procedures are just part of uh, the Department of Finance and Procurement's ongoing effort to fully develop our um, administrative um, requirements related to debt management and consistent with our uh, bond disclosure and continuing disclosure policies that the board adopted last year, we are seeking the same adoption for these policies as well. Um, I guess to your question, Chairman, the uh, post-issuance compliance, we, we issue tax-exempt bonds for our capital projects. And if we were to fail to adhere to any of the covenants that are in our bond documents, we could yeah, essentially that's lose. Yeah, not, that's not so much my question. Oh. Let me go to Mr. Hebstreet because oh. I think he – my question is if we lose – if the tax treatment of these bonds are, is changed and it only affects certain ones, what does that impact to us? And can you explain a little bit about, about which ones are included and which ones aren't? Uh, so, Mr. Chairman – Try anyway. The – if I understand your question correctly, you're – I believe the references to proposed federal legislation yes. around the changes to the income tax law. Yes. Uh, those changes would not uh, apply to this policy, so we could either take those questions now, or if, if it pl pleases the committee, you could vote on the item, and then we could have a discussion about... Uh, yeah, it's not related to this compliance policy directly, so up to you, Mr. Hempstreet. I mean, is this a question you can answer tonight, or... I. I would hope that, well, Ms. Romanchek sits on the board of the Virginia Government Finance Officers Association, so they should be following federal law and what's happening on the Hill in addition to her uh, role as a department head for finance and procurement. So uh, you should be current on what's happening on federal law. If not, then we can come back with, with something more developed. Uh, I have not seen any of the changes that are, that are being proposed in committee currently. Uh, so my knowledge is based off of the bills as they were first uh, right. proposed. Uh, the, the basic uh, challenge for, the, uh, for localities was that although our initial issuance of debt would remain to be tax-free, the uh, there's two main challenges, one being 
uh, that would no longer apply to advance refundings, so which is a, a specific uh, carve out that we have where we outside of a regular call provision, if we have uh, bond bond issuances that are outstanding prior to their uh, being satisfied, we we can do what's called an advance refunding with a, a t by issuing essentially another series of tax exempt debt. Uh, that would no longer be permitted. So if we were to do an, an advance refunding, we would have to use taxable debt in order to do that. Uh, there is a cost to that. Uh, so that's one direct avenue that I, or one direct issue that we are concerned about that I'm aware of. Uh, the second one isn't exactly on point with uh, how we issue debt. It has more to do with the uh, conduit financing that we do through the EDA for uh, those private sector entities that qualify, uh, such as affordable housing. So that, or, or private sector affordable housing companies that use our tax exempt status in order to issue, issue their own debt. Uh, that's non-recourse debt to the county, but it does impact the ability for those uh, entities to access the capital markets to expand affordable housing within the community. There's another piece of that that's related uh, that has to do with how the tax credit program works. So a portion of those uh, companies would no longer qualify for uh, the low income housing tax credit program uh, because, or, or in order to do that, they would have to issue taxable debt. So we can come back with something more developed and yeah. Janet, you have more up to speed, up to date information based off of uh, you keeping track of this. I don't have any additional information at this time, but we're happy to bring something back to you. Yeah, I mean, the only issue is that they're voting on this tax package next week. So if there are changes to this type of financing that actually affect the county, I think it needs to be very clearly communicated. And quite frankly, any of our discussions so far, we haven't really, all the, all the, all the discussions been about salt and things like right. that. And I don't think anybody really understands this very well and why it's problematic for us. The, the big issue that I'm aware of that's out there is the advance refunding. Uh, how many times have we used advance refunding in the last 10 years? Well, now that interest rates dropped, we used it quite a bit um, in the last four or five years particularly. Um, and that is an advantage to us to take debt that's at a higher interest rate and refinance it at a lower interest rate and we're able to remove that debt off our books because it sets in an, an escrow account. Um, so that has been a, a great advantage to the county. Okay, so I know that the right people are not in the room in terms of our legislative program. However, I think between now and next week, we yeah, need we to can, we can drill down on this issue specifically, yeah. understand exactly what's in the, the Senate and House bills and what the conference committee is doing and then potentially communicate the county's position in a way that the chair and the vice chair are in agreement of, um, and in a very methodical way, the technical way about what these, what this issue is for us, um, not in a political way, but just because I truly believe this is an issue that there is not a lot of education about, and it has gotten very little media coverage and all that stuff, unlike some of these other things. So I wanted to take the opportunity, since this was on our agenda tonight, and this was the last meeting of the board except for the public hearing, prior to the federal vote on this, to sort of raise that issue. I don't know, Tim, if you think that that requires a motion. I don't think it does because uh, No, I think we already have existing. direction from the board yeah. on, on that. So uh, I'll work with Ms. Romanchek. We'll have something before the end of the week. Okay. Thank you. 
Meanwhile, um, I will move the Finance, Government Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend the Board of Supervisors adopt the post-issuance compliance for tax-exempt bonds policy as provided in Attachment 1 to the December 12, 2017 Finance, Government Operations, and Economic Development Committee action item. Second. I further move that the Department of Finance Procurement be delegated responsibility to make administrative updates to the policies and procedures as needed and will bring any material changes to the policies of the Board of Supervisors for review and approval. Second. Motion is made, seconded by Chair Randall. I don't have any opening. Anybody have any discussion? All in favor of the item, say aye. Anyone opposed? Motion carries, 5-0. Thank you very much. Okay, last item is, uh, before our break, is proposal to process U.S. passport applications at Loudoun County Public Library's Rust Branch. Um, so this is coming back to us after a, um, a nice uh, diversion to the Library Board of Trustees. It was originally put on the table by the county administration um, as a service that we could provide. I think some of us had concerns about what the impacts would be on the libraries and whether there would be enough resources to do this. And so there is, a, I think, a much further baked proposal um, coming from the Library Board and, and Library Administration that we'll hear about this evening. Good evening. Uh, my name is Chang Liu. I'm the director of the library system. And with me this evening are Mark Miller, the chair of the Library Board of Trustees, and Mike Van Kempen, the deputy director of the library system. Would you like us to give you an overview of the item, or would you like to go directly to I don't questions? think we need a big overview. I think what we kind of would, would probably like is just to drill down on exactly what you're proposing and how this would work. Great. Uh, and Mike how you're going to fund it. Mike will answer that question. Okay, I'll do it very quickly, very, be very brief on this. Um, what we're proposing is that we establish Rust Library as a passport acceptance facility. We're looking to start that July 1st of 2018. We are, um, our plan, as it's laid out here, is to offer the service 40 hours a week, primarily in evening and weekends, because that service is not available anywhere at the county right now. And what we would be asking for in the FY19 um, budget is um, 2.06 new FTEs at a cost of $160,000, which would cover the personnel cost and the operations cost. However, there's revenue coming in. Can right. you explain that revenue piece? Sure. What our assumptions are and how sure we are that enough revenue would come in to cover the cost of those positions. And then I have an, a follow-up about why Rust Library versus other branches. But go okay, ahead sure. We did a lot of research on this, both now and when we brought it before. And every system, library system we've talked to estimates that they process four to eight applications per hour open. We're going with an extremely conservative estimate here. We're talking about three um, applications processed per hour open. And when we go with that estimate, we're looking at $151,425 generated from 6,057 applications. And that's looking at actual hours that were open, looking at holidays and things as well. Now, that falls about $9,000 short of the $160,000, but we're also proposing that we offer um, the photograph service, which is a cost that we can establish. The standard across library systems is $15, so we would go with that. Again, we're going to a very conservative estimate here. Um, both in my personal experience when I established it at another library system and in talking to libraries, people overwhelmingly take advantage of this um, to the tune of more than 60%. We put in an estimate of 30 to 60% of the people applying for passports would get the, um, the photographs and pay the $15. Um, and when we factor that in, at that conservative 30%, we're looking at another 
$27,000 in revenue for a total of 178,685, which surpasses the 160,000 that would be that would be required. Okay. And why Rust Library versus other branches? Well, when we looked at this initially, and you may remember back in September, we thought we were going to do this at Sterling. Then we opened Sterling and realized we didn't have the space. Um, it requires a separate, lockable, private space to do this. Then we took a survey of all our branches, and Rust seemed like the best place to do it because we actually we have a space picked out. And then on top of that, one of the advantages of Rust is the branch manager who was hired within the past year has experience establishing this service at the Frederick County Library System. Was there any thought to Gum Spring, and I'm not just raising it for purely parochial reasons, also because, as I, Mark and I had a chance to talk about this, and I think he was maybe a little surprised, there's no postal, there's no post office in Loudoun County in that part of the county. Um, you, all the mail services is run out of Centerville in Fairfax County. Right. So if you live anywhere in that corridor from Bramble and South in the 50 corridor, you go to Centerville or um, even further east to get a, um, yeah, or up to Dulles maybe, to get your passport if you're going to a USPS facility. So I would imagine there'd probably be a fairly good market there because you're probably 25 minutes at least in either direction, not just nights and weekends, but anytime you do this. So I'd like to respond to that. Um, the, the consideration for, like we originally said, the consideration was, was originally for Sterling Library. Um, the overwhelming success of the new Sterling Library warrants us not able to use any of the facilities there. That location is obviously further than any other spot in the county from any other um, regional jurisdiction. Um, when you look at what what Russ Library offers in its both geographic center, not just to Loudoun County, but also this is this is a federal program. It's not a county program. So any person seeking to apply for a passport anywhere in the United States is welcome to come to the Russ Library and use this service. So we're also geographically centered on Frederick, Maryland, as well as, more importantly, um, Jefferson County, West Virginia, where we ex expect to see people coming from that regard. Um, as we, you and I have personally discussed, when we also look at the proximity to um, Gum Spring Library, while there lacks the services, the postal services opportunities there, it also is a, a, a small portion of the population. And while we know that there is a distance to travel from Gum Spring area, Gum Spring Library to the Rust Library, there's also a significant difference the distance to travel from the Sterling Library to the Rust Library or from Lovettsville to the Rust Library. And as we look at the system, as we look at where things are, the geographic center of the big libraries tends yeah, to be the most Yeah, but I wasn't just talking about the library. The point was it's much easier to get from Sterling to a postal facility that actually has the service than it is from, say, Gum Springs area, because there's no postal sure. facility. There's nowhere to get a passport. And one of the reasons that the United States um, uh, State Department has come to uh, non-postal service yeah. operations, to, to like libraries, to take up this service is because no one wants to go to the post office to do it. So even if the post office is local and central, um, people, you can only go, because of work schedules, people are only allowed to go during the four hours that a library might be open or that's right, that a post office might be open in on a Saturday. Yeah. And in this area, that quite often means either you go to Leesburg or you go to the, the Dulles facility over by AOL or you go to Merrifield. Yeah. And that becomes a challenge. Why there are other options, no one wants to take advantage of those options, which is why we believe that this program under the two-year trial program will ultimately prove to be highly successful. And at that point, happy to look at other locations as, as the funding for it 
become sufficient to cover additional staff at additional locations. Okay. Other questions, comments? Uh, Mr. Buffington first. Just a very direct question. Is there space to do it in the Gumstring Library? Um, yes, to the degree that you ultimately have to remove um, a, uh, a, a study carol, study room. So there's more, there's more availability at um, Rust than there is at Gumstring right now. Okay. Um, let's go to Mr. Bona and then Chair Randall. Yeah, I just have one question. Um, and I, I think Rust is probably as good a choice as anywhere, frankly, because it is kind of central to people coming from other locations, too. That said, <laughs> that said, do you see this service really more as for first-time passport applicants, not renewals? Because I, and I, the reason I say that is I just renewed my wife and mine's passport about a year ago. I did the whole dang thing online other than walking into Walgreens and taking a photo, okay? I mean, it really... I, in the old days, you used to, used to have to go to Merrifield on a Saturday morning and sit on the floor for four hours waiting for them to call you. Nowadays, you get on your computer and you're done in five minutes, stick it in the mail. So I, I'm trying to understand who the clientele is here. It's primarily, yes, you're right. It's primarily for people who are getting it for the first time. Um, if you have a current passport, it's less than 15 years old and it's in good standing, you can do it online. Right. If you've gone past that 15 years, you do have to come in in person and do it. And the other advantage to doing it online is um, the cost breakdown is you pay um, to the State Department $110 and then there's a $25 fee that would go to the county. If you do it online, you don't pay that $25 fee. So it would primarily be people who are getting new passports or people who've allowed their passport to lapse. Um, not, not lapse necessarily, but that it's more than 15 years old. Yeah, agreed, because that was one of the criteria. It couldn't be over 15 years right. old. So, all right, thank you. Okay, Chair Randall. So I was on the, I was on the call when, um, with the State Department when they first called. Oh, it was been well over a year now and made the request of us. And I think you're right. I think you are being conservative. And, and to answer Mr. Boney, your question, they thought that there was going to be a, a, a big kind of run on people who let their passports lapse because surprisingly after September 11th a lot of people got passports and um, and then and they and then now they're letting them lapse so they think in this this 17th 18th 20 year after September 11th there'll be a lot of people who come back to try to <coughs> renew and since we're past the 15 year mark they have to walk in to, to do it because it's past the 15 year mark and so I think that I think you I think you've been very conservative on your estimates I think probably it would be it would be over the national average, especially since this area is, a, is an area where you see a lot of people who do quite a bit of international travel. So, um, and we have a good, a good number of military here also. So I, th I think your estimates are, are low and it's gonna yield more revenue than we, we think it would. I do have one question um, on page, what page are we? Okay, well, I don't know what just happened there. Give me one second. Huh, well, not interesting. Okay, so on one of these pages, <laughs> um, it actually states that that the the people who would be trained to do this uh, are, are county employees. Is there an option for people who are not county employees to be trained by the state department to process passports, or is it only specific to county employees? If it's offered in a county facility, it would have to be county employees. For example, it has to be. Um, Permanent employees. We can't use. Can it be temporary or, 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 or 
part-time. It has to be permanent. Right. Well, they can be, they can they can be, be part-time, part but it can't be temporary. But they can't be temporary contract. substitute. Okay. We, we do use temporary substitute staff for other things, but the State Department was very clear with us. But be, so because use. it's going to be in a county facility, they do need to be county employees. Right. And then lastly, what are, what are the hours for Rust Library? What we are proposing is um, Tuesday through Thursday, 11 to 8 p.m., Friday and Saturday, 11 to 4 p.m., and Sunday, 1 to 4 p.m. And part of the rationale behind that is right now it's offered in five post offices in Loudoun. It used to be, when we came before you previously, there were six. It's no longer offered at um, Middleburg Library. But none of those offer it past at the latest 3.30 on the weekdays. Okay. And then four of those offer two to three hours on Saturday. So that's okay, and none on Sunday? None on Sunday anywhere in the county. Okay. Well, I, I have to say that I think the Rust Library is, is a very logical place to do that. Then. Thank you. Can I just ask a quick clarification on Chair Reynolds' question? So you cannot hire contract employees to do this service is what you were saying? I do not believe so. I can verify that. No, they, they, the State Department came before you a year ago, and that fellow came to our, my board as well and indicated to us that it has to be a permanent employee of the, of the, of the county. So it can't be a temporary worker, can't be a contract worker, and that's one of the reasons that this item took as long as it did to come back. And part of the reason behind that is when we, when staff get trained and we get approved as a passport acceptance facility, a number is given to the facility that we have to put on everything that we send in and that the passport acceptance agents are acting as agents for that, for that facility, which would be the county facility. I'm going to go to Karam, but I am going to come back maybe on the motion with a question about that. But okay. Saints. Right, thank you, Chair. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, and it's been obviously some time now since you first came to us, but I thought there was going to be some startup money from um, from the State Department. Is that correct, or my memory? No. no, unfortunately not. No, they don't provide us any, any startup money. Yeah, right. They provide staff. training. They do. That is true. They do provide training. They provide um, annual training. In fact, everybody who um, accepts passports, what they call passport acceptance agents, would have to go through the training. Um, and be recertified on an annual basis. And they do provide that to us, and they are willing to come out to us. They also provide a phone number that we have regular access to or agents have regular access to should they run into any, any trouble. Okay. But as far as finances, they don't give us okay. they don't give us. That's fine. And then if things go to plan, and it sounds like it will work well since we already have somebody who has done this before, and it sounds like we definitely have a need in Gum Springs. How soon, if it, things go well, to you be coming back, possibly proposed to go to Gumsford. Uh, this this program is the trial program is proposed for two years, and then because of the the, vari the vagrancies of the, the 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 ebb and flow of when passport applications are made, um, but of course if we see tremendous results in the first few months, the board of trustees will certainly look at, in conjunction with the board of supervisors, for funding to speed up the process of of um, of formalizing the making it permanent. Um, program and then expanding it as necessary throughout the county. Yeah, sounds good. That's what I like to hear. Thank you. All right, let me go ahead and get a motion on the table. I move the Finance, Government, Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend the Board of Supervisors forward the concept of creation of a passport acceptance facility at Loudoun County Public Library Rust Branch to the FY19 budget process. <coughs> Motion is made and seconded by Mr. Bona. Um, so you're proposing one full-time and two part-time library assistants. So the, the number that we have, 155, is an all-in number, including salary and fringe for that formula of people? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Have you, did you look at any other way to do that that maybe reduces the, the benefits and the fringe if we can't do contract? 
we, we you want to have one full time. Yeah, we really feel like since it's open 40 hours a week, we need one full time person there. Now, the um, the reason why we're asking for one full time and two part time is both in my experience and the experience of the manager um, at Rust Library. What happens is pretty much every hour you're open, you have people waiting. But in the evenings and on the weekends, it gets significantly busier, yeah. and there are pop-up stations that we can open up so that we can then process two, three people at one time. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, I'll, I'll support this, but I reserve the right to come back and ask for it in Gum Spring if there's any evidence that it's paying for itself because I think there is a particular market there that goes over and above what we've discussed simply because the post office facilities are so inaccessible from that part of the county that this would, I think, I think what we're proposing is really, I know Mr. Miller said nobody likes to go to the post office, but they still do a huge volume of this, and they're sort of the, the go-to right now for the service. I think if Gum Spring were to have this, it would instantly be the go-to as the only place within a 25-minute drive that you could go to at any time of day. So um, I'm okay with starting at Rust and, and seeing how it goes, but I will definitely be asking for, for updates and, um, and, and seeing if that's a possibility down the road. Mr. Buffington. Thank you. Is there room in the Brambleton Library with the plans? <laughs> the plans are right now. Yeah, that was him. Uh, potentially, eventually, there's room in, in the, the main branches as, as, the, as the facilities are constituted now, the branches that would potentially have the opportunity with space would be Rust, um, Brambleton, Gumspring, potentially Cascades, and that really sums up the entirety of the, the large-scale facilities. Thanks. Yeah. Mr. Bono. Yeah, I, I'm going to support this because it appears to be revenue neutral or even slightly positive. But we re that's part of the pilot. We really need to monitor the revenues. Um, frankly, I think Gumspring is a better choice than Brambleton. And the reason I'm going to say that is I think if you had one at Gumspring, um, I think you're going to pull Fairfax people in too. I really do. And we're trying to create revenue off this. And it's not our purpose for doing it, but we want to be at least revenue neutral and no taxpayer money. It's a good service, but we don't want to use a lot of taxpayer money. Right. And that's why I'm supportive of it. But we need to watch that. But I think at Gum Spring, it's a very easy drive for those folks in Fairfax to come right on over up Route 50 or Gum Spring or however they're coming. And uh, Brambleton would be a little farther for them to do that. So thank you. Okay. Any other comments? Um, I don't have a closing. Um, all in favor of the motion, say aye. Anyone opposed? Motion carries 5-0. Uh, Mr. Turner, I don't know if this would be the appropriate time to mention or not um, that over the course of the last two weeks, the Miami Dolphins were successful in defeating both the Denver Broncos and the New England Patriots, so I didn't know if that was the appropriate time to talk about the Patriots the vote. and Denver Broncos instead. That's a board discussion. Okay, that would be, be for a future discussion. I, I, do, I do wish you great luck in the playoffs for the Dolphins if you get there. That, that, All right. That, so, and, um, and to Mr. Buffington's point, it, it would be the Brambleton Library because, well. Oh, yeah, right, right. Because I'm allowed to be petty. Right, right. All right, I think, it's, I think that symbolizes it's time for the board to eat. So um, thank you, uh, uh, library folks, and we uh, look forward to hearing more about that program. And let's go ahead and take a 15-minute recess. When we come back, we will do the two-year-end uh, financial items.
Okay, we're going to resume the meeting with item six and item seven. Item six is more of a information item. Guys? Item six is more of an information item on the FY17 year-end financial condition report on fund balances and revision to fiscal policy. Item seven is our uh, uses of fund balance. I could be like Bob Barker and tell you to come on down, but I kind of thought, even, or it's not Bob. Who was it? It's Drew Carey now. For like the last 10 years, that's where I've been. All right. Uh, good evening, Chairman and Committee members. Um, I'm pleased to announce that the county ended FY17 in a sound financial condition. Uh, there's just a few items I'd like to highlight from the item. I'm happy to report our OPEB liability continues to decline based on the plan changes enacted by the board with a net OPEB obligation of 5.3 million. In FY 2013, our net OPEB obligation was 27.6 million. So you can see the significant difference. Now, as the auditor said, next year we'll be showing the entire liability on our um, full accrual statements, our, state, our government-wide statements. Doesn't affect our fund statements at all. Um, the difference is that the assets, right now we're, we're able to show the net liability, which is offset by the assets. Next year, we'll be showing the liability on the book, but the assets will stay in the trust and will not be offsetting it. So you'll, you will see a larger number there. Okay. Is that all? <laughs> no. Our revenues, exceeded, our revenues exceeded our revised budget by 4.6%, and expenditures were lower than revised budget by 2.2%. And the general fund's unassigned fund balance represents 20.3% of our total fund balance. So on the financial side, those, those are the um, key highlights I wanted to point out to you. Um, do you have any questions on the financial piece of the, the uh, item? I'd be happy to take any questions. No, why don't we go through the whole item, and then if, if there are questions, you can. All right. In addition to the uh, county's year-end financial condition, we're bringing two revisions to the fiscal policy for your consideration. Uh, staff is recommending a change to the adopted fiscal policy to exclude from the $225 million annual debt issuance guideline standalone vehicles and equipment purchases costing no more than $10 million and a financing term not to exceed 10 years. While the county typically doesn't have many re uh, recurring vehicle and equipment acquisitions in the CIP, the inclusion of shorter-term financings for like school buses, for example, and equipment acquisitions which generally will be financed over a five to seven period, years, uh, period of time, competes with the larger scale 20-year financings for construction projects. Essentially, the board is more limited in its ability to address critical infrastructure projects because the issuance limit is shared with these smaller scale acquisitions. The $225 million annual debt issuance guideline is designed to be a proxy for the county's debt ratios to assist the board in budgeting and prioritizing projects in the CIP. The true measure of the county's outstanding debt affordability are the four debt ratios um, that were included in the item. The $225 million guideline serves as an easy tool to guide the board during the planning process. The debt associated with these standalone vehicle and equipment financings would still be calculated, uh, would still be included in all calculations of the four debt ratios. Uh, staff did perform sensitivity analyses to verify that the proposal would not adversely impact the ratios under various scenarios. In addition, while the county is typically planned to issue close to $225 million, 
The actual uh, annual issuances have been under two, 225 million, which has further kept the county from reaching its ratio ceilings. While this policy change does create additional capacity, it doesn't raise the debt issuance limit. In other words, if the board chose to cash fund the acquisitions of vehicle or equipment in any given year, the debt issuance would still be restricted to the 225 million. Should the board choose not to make this fiscal policy change, the debt issuances for standalone vehicles and equipment would remain as part of the 225 million annual debt issuance limit. The second revision to the Why don't we stop on that one? Okay. The treasurer has requested a word on that. Do you still want a word on that item? Okay. We'll have Treasurer Zern come up. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm just going to say briefly that I ask that you not undertake this in addition to the $225 million uh, debt cap. Basically, this would be going around that debt cap limit. I understand it'd be for shorter term debt financing, whether it be for school buses or whatever else it might be. But then you're going to be saying, in effect, you're going to have a $235 million debt cap, but you're not. You're going to be portraying it to the public as a $225 million debt cap with other things included outside of that $225 million. If we're going to do it, do it straight up. Raise the debt cap to 235 to 250 and one other last note that I would make. It was termed to me that we're always very conservative. We ought to use that as a badge of honor. That's why this county has got a triple-A bond rating. We came from single-A to triple-A by being conservative. That's why we're in good shape, and there is going to be a downturn. Make no mistake about it. I can't tell you when, but I can tell you it will occur. And when it does, we're going to be very happy we kept those debt limits in check. Okay. Is there a response, Janet, to the concern? And I guess I'll ask the question, which is, um, what is already excluded from the 225? Metro Rail in general is. We have the Metro Rail, we have the garages, um, and we have the landfill. What is different specifically about the vehicle purchases that lead staff to think that it shouldn't count under the 225 cap? Well, the primary reason is because the short-term um, issue, we're, we're issuing for five to seven years, and these, these pieces of equipment will roll off very, very quickly, and they really are fairly small dollar amount in, in relation to the total CIP, um, and we don't feel that it will really move the ratios by very much. Why wouldn't we just increase the debt cap to accommodate for these vehicles? Well, we could, except that, that then allows that additional capacity to be used for other long-term projects rather than limiting it to, limiting it to uh, the shorter-term um, pieces of equipment and vehicles. Okay. And as I said, if, if we um, you know, choose to cash finance those vehicles or equipment or have some other way of, of uh, covering those costs, then the 225 million limit would stay. Anybody else have questions on that specific item? Uh, Chair, just that, since the treasurer is up at the table right now, um, uh, just that piece about the debt issuance on vehicles. Chair Randall? 
So, Janet, you said, or Nikki, I'm not sure which one of you said, that we're not actually hitting the $225 million debt ceiling, correct? That's correct, because the $225 million guideline is really a budgeting tool, and so you enter into the CIP and you, uh, you budget to um, have certain projects covered in a given year, but we actually finance our, our projects by cash flow. Are and we so, as low as $10 million under the debt ceiling? Oh, yes. We many, are. Many times So then if, if we are that low and we're not hitting it, mm -hmm. why I – I understand the short-term finance and I get what you're saying, but why would we need to do this at all if we're not hitting the debt ceiling right now? We're uh, significantly under – we're not even close to the $10 million – understanding that it would give us more room, we don't need more room. So why would we do it at all? Well, it's, it's really a, a policy decision to make. We, we follow our fiscal policy, and our fiscal policy has given us that guideline. Um, so, you know, we don't want to take we, – we don't want to assume that every year we may or may not hit that 225. Um, so we, we try to maintain ourselves within the, the fiscal policy, and so this allows that under the fiscal policy. And so if we, you know, see that we're running into a problem, we can adjust. We, we raised that when, when this board came on. Mm -hmm. In January of 2016 is when we raised it to 225. What are we hitting? Where are we? Um, for FY17, for instance, we only issued $175.6 million. In FY16, just in this is just new money issuances, $169.9 million. So it really is based on the cash flow needs of the project. Sure. So understanding that at some point in the future we might get there, we're not even close. So uh, I, I, I understand your rationale and which, which – well, I thought I understood because I thought what you were trying to do was create more – capacity in the debt ceiling give us more room but but now you're just basically saying it's about aligning policy it's not really about trying to create more room is that correct it's creating more room for you during the budget process okay and so when you're in here and you're looking at the various projects you're not uh, trying to um, uh, limit yourself for longer term infrastructure projects with very short term debt okay all right I understand thank you um, I know, Ralph, Mr. Hemstreet, did you need to get in right now? I, I, no, I, I just was going to follow up on what uh, Mr. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. The, well, I just want to remind the board, as Janet has referred to a, a few times, the $225 million uh, number is a limit on new debt issuance in a single year. It is not the debt cap. We do have a separate uh, – we do have a separate debt cap that's established by policy, which we're only at 50% of or somewhere in that – look at it, Nikki – but it, somewhere in that vicinity of – so we're not, we're not anywhere near our debt cap. The $225 million new debt issuance limit is a budget tool that was created by the board uh, to, to uh, approximate the combination of your four – debt ratios that actually control your your AAA. And to your point, Madam Chair, we increased it from 200 to 225 because at the $200 million number, we weren't getting close to any of the four debt ratios that the board uses. 
the reason why we use the number during the budget process is uh, most boards prefer to enter into an active dialogue during the budget process around CIP projects and wanting to move projects around between years, trade off um, projects one for the other, and so that number is a lot easier to use during that that discussion because we can quickly calculate impact based off of the number. If the number wasn't there, we would need to go and rebalance all of the four ratios and come back with explanations on them, which in my opinion would be much more confusing. And so that number is set to deal with just the 20-year debt that's being issued, and it's a budget tool. As uh, Ms. Fite had indicated, the actuals occur a little bit differently just because of what the actual cash flow needs are for the project. So if something gets delayed, they don't make it into the debt issuance. Um, so that's why we're typically under. I would not recommend that the board budget above that number even though we're typically below it because we do it based off of need. So what we would be doing is just separating out your short-term stuff since even at $225 million, you're not in any – you're not close to your debt ratios anyway. Um, and we do come back every five years to look at that number. And so I think the next time we're due is – 2022. 2022. So this is just removing the short-term stuff out of it. It's limited to $10 million. It really just helps you with your discussion on your big projects, uh, and we're offering as a tool for you to use just to help simplify your process. But if you don't, I mean, there's no, there's no need to do it. It just, I think, would help you during your discussion on your CIP. All right, Mr. Bonham. Yeah, I think Mr. Hemstreet said everything I was going to and a whole lot more. But the 225 doesn't mean that much. It really doesn't mean that much. It's the ratios such as debt per capita, debt per our uh, property tax portfolio, okay? Those are, those are what matter. But if we didn't have that 225 sitting there, every one of us wants to build everything right now, and the CIP in year one would be $1.5 because we want to build everything right now. And so it's just a tool for us to say <coughs> let's have some limit on how we spread it over the six years, but it has nothing to do with the actuals because we only issue bonds once, twice a year, we issue them based upon the timing of projects, and as we all know, projects change. They get delayed, they get moved, costs go up, we can't, a lot of them we can't control. And so we issue the bonds to match expe uh, expected expenditures, not because it's budgeted X amount in the CIP. If a project is $100 million in the CIP, it doesn't mean we're going to go issue $100 million of bonds. We'll issue the bonds based upon projected cash flow requirements based on the timing of how often we issue bonds. And in this case, general obligation bonds, we do like once, twice a year. That's it. And, and many of them are issued by referendum. So I guess my point is a 225 isn't a number we should really get all that hung up on. It just puts the brakes on the Board of Supervisors to say we can't build everything in one year because that would not be fiscally prudent because that would blow away the ratios, and it's really the ratios that matter in this process. Thank you. Okay. Let's get to Supervisor Umstead. All right. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Um, how, how would this new policy, if adopted, relate to the, uh, the acceleration of the school projects that the school board is requesting? Does it make it easier to move up um, the two schools that 
I think they were looking for 2019 funding. Is it unrelated? Uh, you know, does it help, not help? Um, I would just say that all projects would still have to be evaluated in relation to all the requests that come in. So I, would, I wouldn't say that doing this specifically helps with an acceleration of a project. Would it free up funds, though, for that purpose if the board wanted to accelerate the schools as requested? It, oh, sorry. Oh, no. If you had uh, some of these short-term projects bond funded, then it does add a little capacity. Um, Can I answer that, that, Professor Umstead? Sure. Okay. What it does is it is it right now we don't get an accurate reading of what actually is constituting our 225 because some of the stuff that we're counting against the 225 are short-term debt issuances that shouldn't be there in the first place. As others have said, the 225 in and of itself means nothing. I mean, it's it's literally we use the term fake news as a fun thing now, but that's what it is. Like when that whole controversy was here, it was that's just an approximation for the four metrics that actually matter. So this unclogs a little piece of it so that the board's not getting a false impression of what our actual debt capacity is. Okay. And so to that regard, I think it may help just a little bit because it's not those things wouldn't be clogging up funding that should be available but wouldn't look that way to the board. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Is there anything else you have to say on this particular topic? Because the only motion in this item is related to this topic. So I think I'd like to just dispose of the motion since we've all just discussed it. Um, I think we do still have one other little piece, which was just having to do with uh, removing a, a word from the definition of uh, economic development projects that are excluded from the 225. Go ahead. Um, and that's because we, we have the word major in there, major economic development projects are excluded, but we don't really identify what major is. So I thought it would just be cleaner to remove that. And each project involving economic development is really evaluated by you um, on, as a separate piece. It doesn't normally come with the budget because it happens off cycle many times. And so that really is evaluated um, as a separate item uh, by the board, so I thought it would just be cleaner to remove that one word. Okay. Any questions on that? All right, then. I will move the Finance, Government Operations, and Economic Development Committee recommend to the Board of Supervisors to amend the current fiscal policy to exclude standalone vehicle and equipment purchases costing $10 million or less with the financing of 10 years or less and one-time economic development projects from the annual debt issuance guideline. Motion is made. Is there a second? There is no second. Motion dies for lack of second. All right. You can ask that question, Mr. Uh I want to get clear on the OPEB. What we have to now put on the cover, is that the full retirement liability or just the OPEB liability? And if it's just the OPEB liability, is that full or net? Right now it's net. Next year, it will be with the full liability, which so, still isn't a large number in relation to... Agreed because of our OPEB reforms right. that we brought six years ago, but my point is, so we have to show the liability, but we can't show the associated assets on the front page? Really? Mm -hmm. So I owe $10, but I have nine in the bank, and I have to show I have owe $10, but I can't show I have nine in the bank? Not, not on the, not on the uh, government-wide statement. 
And I'll be happy to bring more information back on the actual uh, state. Well, maybe we can take this up at the OPEB uh, trustees meeting because we have one coming up and Mr. Zern chairs OPEB. Now, my second one, also a trustees meeting coming up, which Mr. Zern chairs, and I'm on both of them, is LOSAP. LOSAP is different than OPEB in that LOSAP is, irre is, is a revocable program. In other words, the board, we never probably would, but we could revoke it. It's a volunteer, no pun intended, because it's for the firefighter volunteers. But it's, 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 a, it's a discretionary program at the board's will. Right. So do we have to report LOSEP liability in the same manner we have to report OPEB liability? No, because it's revocable, the, the assets from the LOSAP plan sit in the general fund, and so we report the asset and the liability. So that one is net. So on the front, we would show the net LOSAP liability? We would show the assets, meaning the, the restricted cash. Yes. And then the liability. So it's in the general fund, just as restricted? Right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, other questions on just this part of the discussion? Chair Randall. Well, no, I have a question on some, some – I have a question somewhere else on the item. Well, I think we were – this was it. it the that, item, right? Then I have a question then. Then go ahead. Um, what is the Comprehensive Services Act fund? What is that? I mean, it's a small amount of money, but I don't know what that is. CSA fund? The CSA fund. What, yeah. What is it? Um, do we have a definition of that? Mr. Chairman. Yeah, go ahead. So the Comprehensive Services Act fund is a – a fund that's shared with the Commonwealth of Virginia that is set up to pay for wraparound services that are adjudicated by the court for uh, juveniles that have certain needs. And so that is a uh, considered a zero-sum type of, of funding. So it, it, because it, it includes funds from the Commonwealth, it needs to be set aside and, and accounted for separately. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Any other questions on this item? Okay. Let's move on then to the good part. Uses of 17 fund balance. Good evening. This item follows, um, takes the balances that you just heard about, and um, for the county general fund and the school general fund, um, recommends some uses for those balances, both in the current year and for FY19. Um, I'd like to refer you to page two of the item, to table one, which contains all the staff recommendations. And just to start off, um, there is a typographical error in the very first line. Um, this uh, previously authorized use of fund balance for the Evergreen Mills Watson Road safety audit, which the board did recently approve, that number should be um, $1,012,506. So effectively what that does is just change our um, FY19 CIP and CAP available number and lowers it by $100,000. Um, I will quickly go through um, each of these things and then we'll be happy to take your questions on these particular items. 
Um, the, the first item on the list is to replenish the commercial incentive funds for economic development. If you will recall, we established both commercial and rural incentive funds um, through fund balance several years ago, and we've been carrying those in the general fund for use as economic development um, uh, proposals come about um, for the board's consideration, both for attraction and retention of businesses in those two areas. Uh, this request adds $635,000, 200000 of which would be related to the Go Virginia uh, discussion that you had in a previous item. The next item is um, from General Services for renovations to the Adult Detention Center to create a break room. This also has previously come to the board and you chose between several options. This $275,000 represents the cost for option one, which was the preferred option for that renovation. The next item, um, security improvements. Staff has previously transmitted information to the board regarding these security improvements. Transportation and capital infrastructure is requesting $350,000 to add to their professional services line in their operating budget. This is the money from which they contract for uh, work to be done on board member initiatives and small traffic calming projects that are brought to the department by the board members. Um, they have been uh, spending this money at a fairly high rate and so they'd like to replenish it so that they can accomplish all of the board member requests and other traffic calming things that need to be done in this year. The next item um, is from the treasurer's office. This is related to um, the town billing project which you've heard um, from the treasurer uh, previously. This is for project management for the um, undertaking that will take several years for bringing PCI um, up to um, compliance to be able to do the town billing as well as coordination with the towns. Next we'd do like- we, Does anybody have questions on anything that's been mentioned so far? All right, well I think we will have questions on that one. So do we wanna stop? And while you're going over these, ask the we question. can, if that's okay. what you'd like to do. Well, why don't we have the treasurer come back on that one? And Mr. Wirtz. Why don't we, why don't you just elaborate a little bit on what exactly has transpired and why this is here? The long and short of it is since we began undertaking the project, we've come to realize the complexities of the issues that were involved, the interfaces that were necessary, working with the contractor the and also the various departments. One person, we can't, we didn't have the staff to devote one person to doing everything. And it's a multi-year project, it's three years. Um, and quite honestly, we thought we were going to have some support. We didn't, it didn't materialize. And here we are. Um, is it too late, I'm guessing, to reflect that this number in the town split that was proposed? Yes, sir, everything's been delivered to all the various town councils. Okay. Any other questions on this? Aaron, you want to? 
You're going for it? So the next item is replenishment of the CIP contingency. As you know, we have a very large capital plan, over $2 billion, and uh, we'd like to keep a sufficient contingency in the fund uh, for dealing with project overages, emergency situations, unforeseen issues with projects. So this requested $7 million would be to replenish what we have used out of that, as well as um, to eventually, um, in the next several months, address a couple of projects which we have previously alerted you to that have um, potentially some overages. Um, those are listed in your items, specifically the Lovettsville Community Center and the Public Safety Firing Range. So we'd like to, to replenish that contingency so we can deal with those projects and others as they come up. Uh, the next item is the Major uh, Equipment Replacement Fund. This request for $2.8 million is in addition to the regularly budgeted amount for this fund. The board established this fund through the budget process several years ago. This fund is intended to give us a replacement plan and funding source for large equipment over $5,000 that are not vehicles. So our, our light and heavy fleet have their own replacement plan that is scheduled, so no um, light vehicles or public safety vehicles are funded out of this fund. However, we have a lot of assets and other equipment that we previously did not have a, a way to fund the replacements of, those things being things like um, landscaping equipment for the Parks Department, um, the bomb unit um, in the Sheriff's Office for their equipment, um, plotter printers for B&D and MAGI, things that are <laughs> need to regularly be replaced and we did not previously have a funding source. So what staff has done um, over the last year is work with a consultant to look at our needs and our assets and come up with a, a formalized replacement plan for this fund, which we can now follow and have scheduled replacements. Because we're just starting that effort on a formalized plan, we have some catch-up funding that we would like to do with this funding in FY18. We have a variety of purchases that really need to be made to get us on a track to then use our recurring funding to have a very scheduled replacement plan. So that's what that um, item is. The next item. Hold on, hold on. Sure. Um, I had some questions on this one, and one of my questions initially, because it wasn't clear to me, was whether this included vehicles, and you pointed out it doesn't. Um, but what sort of equipment are we talking about exactly? Are we talking about, like, you know, gators that Parks and Rec uses or public safety equipment or? Yes, we're, we're talking, we have a large variety of equipment. So we have everything from um, bobcat uh earth-moving kind of things to um, bomb dogs are in here because they require specialized training. So when we have to replace one of our dogs, it costs a lot of money. Um, other, other types of equipment that are used by our parks department, um, I mentioned the large-scale printers that we use that when those need to be replaced. Often our uh, department of mapping cannot afford to carry that expenditure, and um, one of the concerns is that we have over $100 million of this type of equipment, various types of equipment, and should we have a year where we have to replace 
a large quantity of equipment at the same time, that's not something we necessarily have built into our budget. But we, I mean, when we established this in FY16, what was the amount that we put into this fund? We've been putting $4 million into this fund. We have been using that money for purchases that we already knew about. So what this is, is we have a balance of some existing purchases that we need to make that will then set us on a course to have our scheduled uh, replacement plan that so you're essentially that saying that we need to buy 2.8 million more than the 4 million a year that we have allocated previously in this year yes okay so we bought we bought 4 million in 16 and 4 million in 17 but you're saying we need and 4 million in 18 and now you're saying we need 6.8 million in 19 we would like to have that so we can do some catch up what do we need in 20 back to 4 million yes we uh, well so our plan is uh, with this replacement plan we have an annual review that we will do just like we do with the fleet replacement plan where we look at the fund we look at the assets we look at whether the things that are scheduled to be replaced actually need to be replaced or if they can be kind of deferred for another year or longer and so we will we will alter that budget request through the budget process as needed we do not expect our annual need to be any greater than four million dollars a year okay i guess i'm still a little unclear as to why this coming year we were so far off from previous years it's not necessarily that we were far off it is that because we have only been replacing this equipment um, in any kind of uh, formal way for a couple years we basically have a backlog of requests that we would like to address. Okay, I'll let it go. Does anybody else um, want to move on to them? Sure. So the next item is the self-contained breathing apparatus. Um, this item has come to the board previously. You did approve us to go out for a lease revenue financing on this equipment. Um, however, because we have cash available, staff thinks it's um, more cost effective to use the cash to purchase this equipment rather than going out for a small issuance that um, would likely cost money in order for us to issue this, this small amount. So we would like to use cash to accomplish that. Um, the next item is related to Metro. As you know, we're continuing to get clearer on what our contributions to WMATA will be on both the capital and operating side. Um, we are planning, we do have a programmed amount in the capital budget for our, uh, the, the last information, the best information we had on what we may owe um, towards our capital contribution. However, since that is still kind of in flux and we have funding available, staff would like to set some of that aside in the event that we need it to help fill in our obligations on the capital side for WMATA. So on that, uh, we're, we're going to find out when the governor puts out his proposed budget what the state's proposing for capital assistance. And now there's a proposal in Congress to increase the federal capital um, contribution. And then Governor Hogan in Maryland has a proposal to increase it, a different proposal to increase it. Um, so just to be clear on this, at this moment, we don't, know exactly what our capital contribution need will be and we are not necessarily saying that we cannot meet that need but because it is an unknown 
you're recommending that we put money aside to deal with it in future years. Correct. And and should we not need this money, it it would be in reserve for a future use. And because I know the question is going to get asked because the issues are going to get sort of conflated, this is not an indication that our metro tax districts are not producing what we what we uh, projected them to. In fact, they are, right? They are producing. This is not related to the health of yeah. the metro tax district. Okay. Just asking. All right. <clears throat> Other questions on that? Yeah. Mr. Buffington. How did we get to this particular number, $15 million? Um, based on the size of, of the potential capital need, um, we knew that we needed to, to set aside as much as possible. We kind of landed on this based on our other needs and what we thought we might need for 19. We came to, we kind of have this available. Um, the board can certainly alter it. Um, I don't, it's not necessarily uh, precisely based on any known need. We just want to set aside a sufficient amount so that we can deal with um, something that might have a, a magnitude outside of what we have budgeted in the capital fund. Thank you. Okay. Other questions? All right. Keep going. Okay. Um, the next item, all of you should be aware um, of this item, um, just set aside for potential economic development projects. Um, the following two items are from the school request, which is attached to your item. Uh, the schools have requested up to $7 million for these two items. The first one provides the three-classroom addition. Um, it advances that classroom addition from where it would be in the CIP and um, provides that funding so they can go ahead and do that. And then the Luckett's Wastewater Treatment Plant is not necessarily triggered by the classroom addition. However, it serves the school, it serves the community center, the fire rescue facility, and um, will likely be needed in the future. So staff has put it forward as um, a prudent thing to do um, since we have the funding available and it will, it will serve both county and school facilities in that area. Uh, any other any questions on that? Chair Randall, do you have your light on? I don't have a question. I want to be on record saying that um, I'm obviously going to support this. I've supported it from the beginning, but um, I feel that uh, this is a Band-Aid, and what we really need is a, a another uh, Luckett Saints Elementary School, as was put in the CIP for by the, by the Board of Education some years ago. And when I asked that question at the joint meeting, the answer was, clear as mud as to why it was taken out of the CIP. So I, I obviously fully support the expansion, but it is it is a Band-Aid on a bigger need, and I think this is a good way to waste money because we're going to do this $3 million expansion and then have to come back not too long from now and build a whole new school. Um, well, I'm kind of trying to keep this to questions for now. We will debate the motion, but... Um, since the issue was raised, is there 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 was a, a school board document deep in their CIP where they listed like projected replacements for every single school in the mm -hmm. system? Do you happen anybody happen to have that handy to see when the replacement was? I don't, but we can we can get back to you on on where that would. I, be. I don't. I I know. I have the. I think the document. Yeah, I'm sure somebody here has in the room has it anyway. Has it? Um, we will. It's not necessarily needed for this this item tonight anyway, but but it's um, we can maybe take a break and, and just get that 
number, or perhaps perhaps staff can just consult with some folks in the audience and get the number for us while the rest of us discuss. How's that? Okay? Somebody move and ask them. Thank you. Okay. Um, on the wastewater treatment plants, um, the, uh, the, uh, the reason why this is being recommended here is we're probably going to need this for the, um, the community center project, right? Yes. There was some debate about whether we actually needed it for the school, but we really probably don't, but we probably do for the community center project, I, right? I believe that's correct. The information fire we had. Fire sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, you're right, Mr. Higgins. Fire station. I was just going to say the school stated that, that the three-classroom addition they did not feel actually triggered it. Okay. Um, okay. And if we don't have the number, that's fine. I just was saying if somebody actually had the document that has those numbers listed, then it was all distributed to us before the last meeting. Okay. Um, shall we move on? Yeah. Mr. Buffington, did you have a question on? Yeah, just DC? going back to the Metro, do you think by the time we make the final vote on CIP for FY19, we'll have more, we could have more information where we'll know better about whether we need the 15 or a different number? I'm not sure. I think we could have some information. I I don't know if if Ms. Newquist um, so, can come uh, up and. So, uh, while Ms. Newquist is coming up, she may have some additional information. But the the bottom line is, in my opinion, no. Uh, we will have an idea of what our FY19 costs will be, but the FY19 costs will be a partial year for operating. Our capital contributions do not begin until FY20. And so that'll be based off of what happens over the next calendar year in terms of discussions with Metro and the, the two state legislatures and the DC government as to what we will do about WMATA and long-term capital funding. Uh, the earliest that the most likely that, that there will be a significant discussion on that is probably the 2019 legislative session, although there may be some discussion in this legislative session. Uh, but we will not know the outcome of that for WMATA Capital with any certainty until the FY19, uh, FY20 budget. Does that answer your question? I, I agree with that. Unless Penny has anything to add. Okay. No, I, I believe Mr. Henstreet's correct, and Thank we you. haven't even seen the proposed CR operating and CIP from WMATA yet for 19, so it just takes a long time, and there are a lot of moving parts in this dialogue. Okay, thank you. That's a subject of much debate right now. Mr. Higgins, question. Um, Mr. Chairman, I have a couple of comments and then questions. I don't know what's this right time. Are, well, are they real? Because we will have debate on each of these items, but do you, are they real questions, like you need to know sort of factual questions? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, one project that I'm wondering where it is in all this, and there was some discussion, I guess, of including it um, that I was not directly involved in, in fund balance was, and that was the uh, road stabilization project in Waterford by the mill. Do you know anything about that? I know DCTI was working on that, and we had, I've had some questions from the Waterford Foundation about it, and. Uh, I just, you know, I don't know if it was in this discussion or some other discussion, but where that might end up. Mr. Chairman? 
Supervisor Higgins, the, um, our office has retained a consultant to complete that work. We have recently received a draft document. We are scheduling a meeting with that consultant to discuss the content. I believe uh, a staff member briefed you maybe maybe about six weeks ago of where the where the project was was headed. Um, so we think that we're probably just 30 days or so from concluding that report. I guess my question is, I think it's uh, looking for like $700,000 where, where or when that funding is going to come. Well, I don't, I don't know that we've concluded the recommendations. I'm not sure that where the $700,000, what you're referring to, but the piece that we still need to work with the consultant is where I, I, I feel that they did not explore uh, the option of um, uh, an alternative route. They they made it. They came to the conclusion that uh, an alt in order to imp to impose a, uh, a through traffic restriction, they need to demonstrate to VDOT that a uh, a, a similar or reasonable alternative route exists. And they have uh, identified um, Route 287 from, from Lovettsville to Route, using 287 down to Route 9 and then Route 9 back to Route 7 as the alternative route. I personally uh, question that, that is the average, would the average driver um, choose to use that route. If they would choose to use that route, they would be choosing that today. Uh, but they believe that once the roundabout gets installed at 287 and Route 9, that the driver would choose that. I personally disagree with that, with that conclusion, and that's why I intend a meeting with them uh, here over the next couple weeks to have that conversation. So we should have something ferreted out on this in a, in a few weeks. Uh, we should be able to present that report either the, the second meeting in January or the early first meeting in February, obviously scheduling depending. Okay, we're, we're getting off the reservation. I just wanted to talk. Yeah, let, let, so I was trying to have questions just on the items Aaron's presented, and then we can have questions about other items anybody might want to have at the end. So do you have anything on? Not what's on there, but I have something. I'd okay, like I'll come back to you. Let's try to get through her, her rest of her items, which I think we left off on, um, yeah, um, so we, we were done with that, I think. So nothing else. So we're on reserve for a reduction in real property tax rate, which hopefully we all understand, but go ahead. Right. So those items we previously discussed would be 2018 requests for immediate use of those funds. The next two items are related to the FY19 budget process. Um, traditionally, what we have done at this time of the year, if the board's preliminary guidance to us for the next budget could possibly result in a reduction of the tax rate below the current rate, it is our practice to, to set aside some fund balance or recommend that to the board um, in the event that you actually do adopt a rate that is lower. Um, remember that the fiscal year and the tax year do not line up. So what you will be establishing will change the, the levied amount for the, the, the collection that affects the second half of this fiscal year. So if we adopt a lower rate, we could potentially have a shortfall of revenue. Um, and so that $12.3 million represents the difference 
between the potential current rate and where the equalized rate stands right now, and I should clarify that the last time we talked to you about preliminary guidance, uh, we were estimating that revaluation was going to be at or right below about 1%. The indications from CORE currently, they're about 75% of the way through their valuation process, and they, uh, their numbers are coming out to about a 3% revaluation. So what that means is that instead of a $1.11 equalized tax rate, we could be looking at a $1.95. So what this represents is three pennies, that difference between the current rate and at the potential equalized rate, and half of that, which would be what we would, what would accrue to FY18, the potential impact that would um, hit FY18. So that is just reserving those funds um, pending your decision on a tax rate. I think we got it. All right. So, All right. And then the remainder would be what we would recommend that you send forward for our use for one-time needs in FY19. Okay. Well, that one you should probably explain a little bit more. So, so <laughs> How we use that. Because we have this debate every year about how that can be used and how much of it can be used and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So go ahead. So if you will recall, in FY18, um, or for the FY18 budget, the board actually used about $47 million of fund balance. Um, typically, we're, we're comfortable somewhere around $40 million or less, um, so we were right around that. Uh, what we use this for, since this is fund balance, it can only be appropriately used for one-time needs, so that would be in our capital improvements plan, in our um, capital asset replacement, which is CAP. So what we would do is, instead of using new local tax funding to go into that fund, we would use some fund balance so that more of the local tax funding could be split for operations between us and the school board. Okay. Questions on that specifically? Mr. Lovins. Does this money, would this money create room for new projects in FY19 CIP? Well, the way it's proposed here, it wouldn't necessarily create new room. What it would do is allow us to use new local tax funding um, on the operating side, or if the board chose to send more to capital, they could do that. But it would allow us to, to use more of that funding to split with the schools. So traditionally, we have followed that 66-34 um, split on new local tax funding. Thanks. For one-time uses. For Okay. Any other questions about things that were in Aaron's presentation? And you didn't quite cover absolutely everything in here, but I think we all get the gist of what all these things are. Um, okay. Are there questions about other potential items um, to be discussed for fund balance before there's a motion on the table? Mr. Hagan. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I guess one thing I'd like to find, and I just recently got a request from uh, Town of Hamilton for $30,000 to help them with their park and rebuild their, their park. And if we could find that someplace, I'd be very appreciative of that money for the Town of Hamilton. Um, but in um, addition to that, we've had some discussions about the uh, potential state park up in Nearsville, and uh, I guess least talked about some committing committing some money to that so I hope that we don't forget that in this process because we're supposed to be working with the state to find the balance of it um, and uh, 
the project I mentioned before, and we'll sort it out with um, Mr. Krovath, is not the traffic calming project in Waterford, but it has to do with this mill stabilization in the road that goes by there. There's already like $575,000 just in the form of a grant that was received, I think, from the federal government. And we're looking for, the, I think, the engineering and the balance to fund that project. Okay. Supervisor Higgins, again, my apologies for misunderstanding your, your comment. Um, in, in regards to the mill project, based on the schedule that we're on, we do believe we need additional funding, but what we would prefer to do is to process that through the budget process as the CIP is presented to you, uh, because we don't think we need those funds until probably 2020. So it would be in the CIP rather than something like this, okay. Well, I mean, we'll have discussions with the management budget and they'll <coughs> speak with the county administrators to see how he can fit it into the CIP. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and put a motion on the table. I move the Finance, Government Operations and Economic Development Committee recommend the Board of Supervisors appropriate 43,321,983 of unassigned FY 2017 fund balance for the uses list in the December 12, 2017 Finance, Government Operations and Economic Development action item, um, inclusive of the full school board request and direct the county administrator to one, reserve 12.3 million of fund balance for a potential reduction in real property tax rate for the second half of tax year 2018 and two, program up to $27,377,485 of fund balance for one-time purposes in the FY19 proposed budget as needed. Second. Motion is made, seconded by Chair Randall. And just a note, the motion that I made differs slightly from the one that's in the packet because of a uh, recording error on funding. It's off by $100,000, so I, I made a slightly different motion. Um, we should be on time, time debate. Um, so I think uh, what's in front of us, there's obviously a lot of different ways that we can parse this up, but um, to use Mr. Zern's word earlier, we want to be conservative with the, the money that we're, we're spending. Um, and so we are reserving a significant amount of money. I think what's maybe a little bit different this year is we're specifically setting aside some of it for potential future metro needs. Um, and so the actual 27 million number looks a little bit lower than, than before, but in reality, we're still reserving a significant amount of money. Um, we're also funding a number of things that the board has previously mentioned that we wanted to uh, fund. Um, and that includes the safety audit for Evergreen Mills Road. Um, uh, we didn't spend any time talking about it except for Aaron mentioning it, but the commercial incentive fund, which as I said earlier, we have used, we use it sparingly, but we do need to replenish it. And we decided to do that out of fund balance, just in case in a given year we had very little fund balance. That's one thing that's a, um, not an absolute necessity, but it's something working for us. Um, the ADC break room uh, is something that we've uh, all previously discussed and I think we all endorsed uh, the concept of to provide some relief and a little bit better conditions for the uh, sheriff's deputies that work there um, at the adult detention center. And then the other items. Um, so I think this, this represents a, a good use of funding. Um, you know, there's always a question, why does the county have this much money at the end of the year? Is it too much money? And I know that uh, there's one individual that criticizes the schools for having 15 million surplus. And I guess I would just say is um, I applaud staff for bringing us in under budget year after year, but especially this year, uh, because this is a significant, uh, uh, significantly under budget. Um, and that isn't just because we over budgeted, but it's because there's a conscious effort made throughout the organization to try to save money. 
Um, and frankly, I, I don't, we don't have as much insight into what's happening on the school side, but considering the size of their budget, which is, you know, a billion dollars, 50 million is not a lot. Actually, it's cutting it fairly close. So I don't have any problem whatsoever with them having a $15 million surplus um, at the end of their year. That's a totally acceptable. And these numbers sound like big numbers, and they are big numbers, but in reality, in the context of the size of our budget, um, this means that everybody's doing things properly. It also means that we've had revenues coming in stronger than anticipated. And I'd always rather be more conservative in how we're forecasting our revenues than, than not. Um, and a lot of that has been because of the efforts of Mr. Reiser and his team and also the, the data center industry that's been so strong coming in. So uh, this overall is good news. Um, the fact that we're able to spend this money for projects that uh, citizens have requested, like the, the Luckett's Elementary School, which we've heard so much about, the wastewater treatment plant, which helps us down the road. These are all good uses of fund balance. Uh, I'll go to committee members first, Mr. Bonham. Yeah, I, I want to just pile on what Supervisor Letourneau just said because there are some that criticize us for having a surplus. A, a fund balance is a sign of both a positive, um, positive and available. It, it's key to maintaining a strong fiscal standing for a AAA credit rating. And let's not forget, not only is it fund balance, we reserve 10% of our budget is an operating reserve is a rainy day, essentially, so, should something go wrong. So if the county budget is hypothetically $2 billion, we put aside another $2 million in cash. And it's all these things that add up, staying within the ratios, having a strong reserve, having, being well-managed and actually having a fund balance versus a deficit. These are the things when you go to the credit agencies in, in Wall Street, and Supervisor Turner's done it, Chair Randall's done it, I've done it. These are what they're looking for. And if we didn't have a AAA credit rating, what would that mean? It means we could do less projects because we would pay higher interest rates. If we pay higher interest rates, our money doesn't go as far, and we can't finance as many projects. So it's very important what we have here. I'm totally supportive of these uses. I think all of them are good uses. It's a good prudent, especially the $15 million for Metro. If we don't need it, we don't need it. We'll claw it back and we'll put it towards a capital project or something to that effect. The $12.3 for the tax rate, that's something we do every year because it's very important to understand that the current tax rate is $1.125. And we are projecting the equalized rate right now to be $1.95. So if the board kept taxes dollar-wise exactly where they are, the new tax rate becomes $1.05. But our budget was prepared with an assumption that it would be $1.125 for the rest of the year. And so if all of a sudden we lower it to $1.95, that's revenues we won't have against what we budgeted, and we're going to have a deficit in the budget for six months. So this is our hedge bet because of, as, as Ms. McClellan said, the tax year is six months offset from the, from the uh, fiscal year. The tax year is the calendar year. The fiscal year starts on 1 July. And so if we arbitrarily, arbitrarily lower the tax rate six months early, we are going to not have the revenues we thought we were going to have in the budget. So by reserving the 12.3, we account, account for that should the board set the tax rate lower than $1.125 and right now equalizes $1.95. So it's a hedge bet, but we do it every single year. So I'm very supportive of this motion. Thank you. Chair Randall. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very good motion, and um, I think there are a lot of things that have um, um, led to our uh, fiscal 
house that we have right now, and of course, um, uh, staff, Mr. Reiser, um, and some some conservative thinking on, on some parts has been really helpful. I want to highlight a couple things. I want to especially highlight the um, adult detention center break room. Um, I, I appreciate my colleagues supporting me on that uh, when I bought that. As I've said before, you know, if you're an officer in a jail, you need to take a break. You need to be able to walk off the unit and take a break. It makes for a, a safer facility, um, and it's just a just a, a wise thing to do. So I appreciate that. I appreciate what's happening in in, in Luckett's. Um, again, I've said what I have to say about that. But um, the the expansion is, you know, if if, if it's a bandaid, it's a bandaid. It's better than not having the bandaid right now. So. Um, I appreciate uh, uh, that very much. Now, I do have one question, Mr. Chairman. This may or may not be the appropriate time to ask the question, but since we're not going to have another um, we're in your time. Uh, meeting before, a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Le Mr. Bona um, said something I thought was incredibly logical, which is <laughs> wow. <Well. laughs> He, he said that we do the budget backwards. He said that we do everything, and then we talk about the schools at the very yeah. end, and the schools is the big, the, the the big thing in the room. And maybe we should do that just the opposite, and 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 put the schools up front so we know what we're working with to some degree. And and when he said it, you know, I thought, well, I, I don't know if that's ever been done before, or how that looks, or how that affect how that impacts, um, you know, what 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 we do going forward. But I think it's something that we should look at because it actually makes perfect sense. Um, we, when we're making these decisions, we're so aware that the, that the school budget is coming, that we, you know, we, we vote for some things that we might not vote for, and we don't vote for some things that we would otherwise vote for, and you know, departments that come later. I always feel worse for those departments because departments that come later kind of get the. The, 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 the shaft because they uh, you know they weren't up front when we had lots of money left over. But if we did it the opposite, if we if we did the schools first and we kind of knew what we're it, it frees us up to really know what we're talking about. So is is that possible? And I and that may be something you have, you have to take back and look at and figure out how to do it. But can we can we maybe even maybe individually have a have some information on how that would be done, Mr. Hemstreet? That's really a decision for the board to make. Um, the reason my interpretation of the board's, the way the board has traditionally scheduled that discussion has to do with really uh, the 66-34% split. And so based off of the board guidance, the proposed budget uses that to, to split the revenue the new revenue that comes into the system. And so typically the main reason why uh, the board has left that to the end is to deal with the 34% side first to see what's left in terms of, of funding to set the tax rate because that is the final vote that happens. And with the schools being 66% of your operating budget, that has typically been the board's the way the board has worked through it, but that's not a staff decision. That, as you know, that that those those meetings and the the agendas for those meetings are set by the chair um, in consultation with the vice chairman, and so uh, and that's really up to you. 
uh, as I said, though, the, the challenge has typically been the split of funding and how that works, and uh, that's, really, uh, that's really a board decision based off of board dynamics. Thank you, Mr. Hemstreet. Okay, any other committee members on the motion? I will go to Mr. Higgins. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I want to thank you and the members of the committee for indulging me tonight and allowing me to participate in your meeting because you, know, you didn't have to. Um, and I want to thank staff for the items they brought forward and the issues that are in there with uh, luckets, the needs for luckets, and also the CIP contingency that will help to bail out the Lovesville project if that's needed. And that one's been that one's been hanging out there a long time, so I appreciate that. And I appreciate the support of the members of the committee for this item as it stands. Um, just to comment on the fund balance, it, for those who would criticize us for having coming in under budget, could you imagine if we overspent <laughs> and came up short for crying out loud? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, just quickly, was there ever an answer to that question? I, I believe so. So uh, it appears from the school document that FY31 contains the okay. replacement at $52 million for FY31. Okay. Well, so we're... We're buying a significant amount of time uh, on that one. Well, all right. It doesn't claim, it doesn't change the motion this evening anyway. We can, uh, this, uh, just by way of closing, this will go to the board's which meeting, Madam Chair? Are you going to do this third or you want to go to the second? It will probably go to the, it will probably go to the January 3rd meeting. Probably go to the third meeting. Okay. Well, sounds yeah. like the chair and the vice chair. Um, well, I don't know Mr. about that. I don't know about that. Probably not. Mr. Hampshire. Yeah, we would, we would uh, request that it go to the January 3rd meeting, uh, which will also be final fiscal guidance. Right. Uh, okay. For the board, so. which, means, which, which means we don't want to, we also wouldn't want to put a whole lot of other things on the January 3rd meeting. Okay. Well, the good news is most of the board was here tonight, so hopefully everybody has <laughs> gotten their fill of this. Uh, discussion. Okay, well, uh, with no other comments, all in favor of the motion, signify by saying aye. aye. Anyone opposed? Motion carries 5 0. Um, I believe that is the last item before us this evening. So thank you, everybody, and we'll see you back here for our public hearing tomorrow.